There is a podcast that is a world unto itself. A podcast as boundless as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the place between light and shadow, science, science and, and superstition. superstition. You've entered the, the fifth dimension. dimension. The latest series from the Consequence Podcast Network will open the door into Jordan Peele's new revival of the Twilight Zone, and it will go as far as the limits of the mind itself. Subscribe to the fifth dimension. Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too. And I'll be right there behind you. All in the name of oh, All in the name of oh, All in the name of oh. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome yet again to the Losers Club. Stephen King podcast from the Consequence Podcast Network. I am one of your co-hosts, bringing the daisies since 2017, Justin Crewneck Gerber, a longtime contributor to Consequence of Sound, and a co-host over at the Halloweenies, a Freddy Krueger podcast. Well, it's June, which puts us six months into the new year, and more importantly, four past midnight. That's right. We have entered the time rip in our podcast and find ourselves in 1990s for the first time. And what better place to start than where we literally have to start because we cover Stephen King books chronologically. Over the next three weeks, we'll be covering every novella from Four Past Midnight as well as any accompanying adaptations. That means for this episode, not only are we talking the, the Langoliers, but the 1994 ABC miniseries as well. I apologize, the 1995 ABC miniseries as well. But before we do all that, let's head around the table, introduce ourselves, and discuss the first time we heard about the story read the story, and saw the miniseries. I'll start off with the person I'm pointing at. The people listening at home have no idea what, what's happening right now. Surprise. Ah. This is uh, Lara Mady Unterstall. Um, <laughs> yes, I've been on the Losers Club once before for the Misery episode, mm-hmm. and I am a sometimes co-host of... Uh, Oh my God, what is it called? Halloweenies. <laughs> I just keep calling it the Freddy Krueger podcast in my head um, because I, I like that guy. He's a pervert. Um, anyway, uh, the first time I encountered anything Langoliersy was indeed the 95 miniseries. I had actually never read the novella before uh, this podcast, so I had a strong childhood association with the miniseries. I remember watching it with my parents, and it was like one of those TV events when that was still a thing um, where everybody was talking about it and it was going to be, you know, I guess they didn't really do, I guess now it would be um, for the. Like like for ABC or. Yeah. 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 Sorry. I just had like a complete brain fart. Um, (laughs) I'm very tired and hungover. Sorry. Um, That was just kind of a thing. Like these days we do see adaptations of of everything is like a series now, but back then it wasn't really like that at all. Um, So it was a, it was a TV event and we all watched it and it sucked. Um, I think it was my first realization that something I was afraid of could end up being really dumb Um, because I remember like there was all this build up to like, what are the Langoliers going to be? And I'll save more thoughts on that for later, but um, we all laughed really hard and then it was a running joke between me and my parents, anytime we saw like a bread roll or like a, a clam or something like that, we were like, the Langoliers are going to get you. And we would just make the little clam hand motions at each other. Um, 
So that's pretty much my association with it. And also I like Bronson Pinchot. So well, who doesn't? Mm-hmm. We'll be talking about him uh, a lot, I think, later on in this episode. And across from me, who are you? My name is Dan. Ah. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> paper Rip Flieger. Um, pronounce the P on Paper Rip, silent P for my last name, but... <laughs> Uh, it's good to be back. Uh, I've done, I think, three or four episodes yeah, yeah. of Losers You've Club. done a lot of the Dark Tower heavy Yeah, episodes. I tend to be the Dark Tower guru, I guess, mm-hmm. but trying to branch out. So it's nice, you know, get a short story in here. Um, I've actually never read this book until this time around. However, I watched parts of the miniseries um, back in the day. Oh, lucky you. Yeah, back in the day, you really <laughs> couldn't, you know, record things unless it was on VHS. And I wasn't about to waste a tape on this horrible miniseries. But I just remember walking in at one point and asking my mom what was happening. And she's like, they're monsters that eat time. <laughs> and if someone had reminded me of that, I could have saved three hours of my life rewatching this film on YouTube. Mm. Well, we'd like to thank whoever is up, out there uploading not only this miniseries, but the Tommyknockers miniseries to YouTube. Otherwise, there would have been no way for me to watch this. I couldn't find it cheap on Amazon or anything like that. Uh, for me, this is also well, this is a, a trifecta of people who have never read The Langoliers. This is my first read, too. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to do these episodes because, you know, I mean, I've read it before and I've read all the big ones before. But every once in a while, I do, I do come across the ones I've never read. Unfortunately, like Laura, though, I, I did see the miniseries in full uh, 24 years ago. And I remember promising little Justo myself that I would never have to watch it again. <laughs> and, um, you know, be careful what you promise yourself, let alone other people. Uh, yeah, 1995, this was a, a huge deal, like you said, because this was coming off of The Stand, yes. which was a huge success for ABC, you know, prestige, and this was the big follow-up was going to be, of all those Stephen King novels, they got the rights to the Langoliers. <laughs> and uh, needless to say, I was, even as a little boy, severely disappointed, and my thoughts have not changed in the last uh, 24 years. So exciting stuff. We're going to get a little bit more exciting here. We're going to go into the history and, uh, and kind of the synopsis of the Langoliers. Ah, yes. Don't you see? Don't you see how clear it all is? Not only can you see the future, you can... I can change it. You can change it, exactly. Not a lot of backstory behind this. In the introduction, though, to uh, Four Past Midnight, King did have to say, get ready for this info drop. Here we go. That's the drop noise. He talks about his critics. Something mm. he does a lot. He does a lot. He says he doesn't care, but he cares a lot. So this is what he says about his critics. Uh, almost all of them would napalm one particular novel, novella, but since each of them picked a different story to scorch, I felt I could disregard them all with impunity, and I did. But they don't get me down for long. I just kill a few children and old ladies, and I'm right as a trivet again. He's got a sense of humor about it. That's good when it's universally <laughs> panned and you... Declare exactly. immunity yes. or impunity. Well, you see, I think he's talking about different seasons when he's writing about this because, you know, I think people have their favorites, people have their least favorites in that collection. Um, but for the Langoliers, he said that the bright central image that fueled, <laughs> I wrote fueled, <laughs> we'll be talking about fuel many times in this episode, that fueled the Langoliers was of a woman pressing her hand over a crack in the wall of a commercial jetliner, which is actually literally referenced in the uh, novella itself. Not a lot here, folks. Not a lot. There's not some great backstory about encountering somebody or having a problem on a plane that was going to explode or something or, or even dreaming this up. That was the starting point. Um, do you think that King earned the, uh, the pay- was the payoff earned from this, uh, this image he had in his head? Uh, I mean, define earned. Um, 
Yeah, I, I no. <laughs> we can get short <laughs> answers here. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like Bugs Bunny gag with like the finger in the dike to stop the dam yeah. from exploding or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it, just a woman holding a patching up a hole with her hand that seems like a very weak point to start. But I guess it is a short story, so. I guess whatever kicks it off, right? You there know. you go. Mm. That's whatever kicks it off. And there's not even a whole lot of description um, for the, in the Four Past Midnight about the other three short story, the other three novellas, excuse me. So not a lot of uh, history, kind of just, here's my collection of novellas. Hope you all enjoy it. And that is the end of this section. <laughs> Exciting. We're going to move on to our next session. We're going to really talk more about the, the hook of the Langoliers. All right, so this session, we're basically just going to break down how would you describe this book in like even less than a tweet, like a sentence? What would, what would be the selling point here? Laura? It's always later than you think. Mm. Dan? I guess uh, Huey Lewis said it best with, got to get back in time. I like it. I think um, you don't want to waste time. Hmm. hmm. Before time wastes you. Mm-hmm. Oh shit! Now that would be ah. a good like poster tagline if we did like a, a bad seventies horror poster version of the Langoliers. What if this uh, movie was released in theaters? <laughs> like, like Paramount Pictures put it out as a three-hour epic. Because like, <laughs> yeah. it is a three-hour epic. I think originally it was supposed to go to Cannes, um, and then it got bumped. <laughs> mm. It got bumped for uh, like what was ninety-five? What came out in ninety-five? The English yeah. Patient, I That'd guess. Be like Lars von Trier. What is it? <laughs> Beyond the Breakers? Oh, Breaking oh. the Waves. Breaking the Waves. Yes. Because 94 was the movie year to remember. Now, yes. I don't know what the hell happened in 95. I think the English patient came along and smashed its way into our hearts and uh, oh, burned English. victims into the desert. Didn't you see that for your 30th birthday, Justin? I did. Uh, it was a beautiful time. I was um, celebrating my 12th year of being able to vote, uh, even though we we're prepping, of course, for 96. We were really yeah. raging up for Bob Dole, of course, you against uh, Bob write, Bill Clinton. You kept writing in Mondale still? I know my history lessons here. I know my history. <laughs> Barry Goldwater was still in the you know, back of my mind. These are all funny bits, everybody. I couldn't vote yet. I'm not that old. Um, also, did somebody say a race against time? I think. Is that in the intro or the... It could be, but it, this is literally a race against time. You know, yes, it's, in it's, a literal sense. Yeah, that would be the best way to describe this book. I don't know. There's not really a lot of deepness at all. This is all pretty surface level material here. Yeah, the themes are kind of on the nose. Uh, you'll see that as a theme throughout this podcast. Um, <laughs> I don't know. What can you say? It's like uh, clock, clock's a ticking. <clears throat> time is racing and, and racing against time, and time will kill you if you don't uh, get away from time. Yeah, I, I tried to pick out some of the tropes and like recurring motifs but man they were super <laughs> surface level well there's a lot of recurring motifs if you like to hear about how to like fill up a plane or in- insects that's one that i'll point out later there's recurring ah. insect theme oh yeah, yeah. i guess mm-hmm. the buzzing and everything else too going on there maggots <sighs> maggots eating the bodies of the dead because they ran out of time Ooh, i don't know i'm just trying to keep it dramatic i'm gonna text steven real quick and see what he thinks about all these thoughts stevie mm-hmm. uncle stevie um, you know, give me, his, give me his number. I've got after, it right here. I'm gonna, we, we don't want everybody here, but I'll, I'll write down the 10 digit number, including the area code KL5 555. I'm trying to think of what else we could possibly even talk about this. I've got, listen, I, everybody listening at home is probably like, is this gonna be a 20 minute episode? I promise you, when we get to the crux of the characters and the actual events of the book, there'll be a lot more to discuss. I do, do not stop listening to this episode, I promise. <laughs> Some other hooks, I think, if you look at, like, you know, what if James Bond was on a commercial airliner that got lost in time? 
<laughs> yeah, that's definitely like oh, well, probably what went through his head when he was picking uh, out the characters, and it's just like, ugh, like really, yeah. I, I got I got to say this because I've got some questions about who he was picturing in this in the role of Nick. Uh, again, that's the hook, folks. This is going to be a, a lightning fast episode. Maybe we'll see what happens here. Let's move on to our next section: structure and format. As we discussed earlier, this is a novella, and he has found great success in novella before. We've got, let's break it down. We have got The Body, which became Stand By Me, of course, beloved by many. We've got Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption, which, believe it or not, became The Shawshank Redemption. Oh. And theaters. I don't know if everybody even knew that. Did you, did that, you do that? I'm surprised. Yeah. They're always adding articles these days. <laughs> just, just embarrassing. They got to sell it with that definitive The. Uh, then App Pupil, which was also adapted into a movie. Directed by uh, the, the one of our great directors who directed oh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, let's not even mention him. But <laughs> it rhymes with uh, Cyan Bringer. Cyan Bringer is a pretty cool name, though. It sounds like you're, you're yeah, like Charn. very metal. <laughs> yeah, he's friends with Heaven Macy, right? I think he is. Uh, both oh. are doing just great these days. Nice guys. Fantastic. I'd lo- love to meet them. Shake their hand. And the breathing method is the unknown. Well, it's the little known novella from that collection, which is actually quite good, but it just doesn't. You know, everybody else knows about those other ones. And in the Skeleton Crew short story collection, of course, the novella of The Mist, which became a very, uh, it's a big cult movie now, you could say. I don't think it was a huge box office success when it came out, but uh, beautiful black and white version of The Mist. You can hear us talk about all of those novellas and like five different episodes, I think, spread out throughout the Losers Club. And so, yeah, he's on here. So it was looking good. He had some. The batting average was tremendous for all you baseball fans out there. He was batting like you know eight hundred essentially. What did you think? Let's, let's just without giving our nose rating, which we'll give at the very end of this. Based on those other ones, if you read them or not, what, what do you think? How do you feel this compares to those? Is it easily the worst, or is it maybe somewhere in the middle? I'm gonna go with easily the worst. Yeah, as compared to different seasons, or yeah, just the difference, the ones in different seasons. Oh, different seasons is great. I love that book. Yeah, um, I think those are all home runs. This is, oh, another baseball analogy. Oh yeah. <laughs> No, this is like a ground rule double. No, I don't even know. No, this, this is, is like, like this is like getting put into a coma in Dodger Stadium parking lot. That's yeah, it's, how bad when the, it's when the foul ball hits the little girl. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's topical, <laughs> topical, topical humor. I don't know if it's humor, but it's definitely topical. I made it humor. <laughs> we're all we're, we're very funny here. Um, yeah, compared to that, I was so I was really looking forward to seeing what they were going to be able to do here. And now after reading this, I think about the three to follow and I'm a little more. Uh, a little more wary of where we're going to be going after this. I've heard mixed things from the other losers about the following three stories. Although a couple of them did say this is probably the worst of the bunch. Why King decided to lead it off with this one? Maybe because of the length? It's the longest, I think, of the four novellas. I was looking at reviews online just, you know, because I was thinking about my reaction. And people, there were like a lot of really positive reviews out there about this novella. And I sort of was taken aback because I, I'm like, I got nothing but haterade to pour today. Um, mm-hmm. I apologize in advance to anyone that, you know, has a soft spot for the old Langoliers, but <laughs> I don't get it. Don't get it. Any comments, Dan? I'm going to sustain my... Uh, <laughs> we'll hold off when yeah. we get to our next section here. 
Um, I do want to break this down. I, I do want to go a little bit long on this, and I'd like to talk about the science of the Langulars. I think the science of the story is pretty original. I don't think we've really delved into this before, right, this type of atmosphere, not just in Stephen King, but in terms of the stories I've read or even the, the shows or movies I've seen, this seems like a pretty unique telling of what would happen if you were out of time. I don't know. What the do you think about the science of it? Um, well, I mean, the premise, I think, is good. Yeah. I think it's a really solid premise for a 15 to 30 page short story. Mm. I'll save the rest of my thoughts on that. But yeah, I mean, it's an interesting concept. I think that's it's literally the only reason I think it got turned into a miniseries because it just has an interesting, you know, idea. I don't really know what else to say about it other than like, sure, you know, we got a time rip. What happens to all those planes and, and like Bermuda Triangle boats and mm-hmm. stuff? What if they're just lost in a in a past where there's nothing and then they get eaten by clams? Like, why not? You know, um, works for me. Yeah, think- I guess just to give any uh, listeners who haven't read it or don't want to waste their time reading it. <laughs> Essentially, a bunch of passengers fall asleep on a plane and they wake up and they're basic. I'm not sure how much time back they are, but there's these creatures that eat up old time and they need to get back to the present. Yeah. And that's the main conflict. So it's these sort of weird monsters that are only named because one of the villains in the book had a childhood fear of things called the Langoliers. So that's what they dubbed these monsters that yeah. eat time. That's a great description of the, of the book, essentially. I mean, all right, let me, let me break down some of these scientific mo- moments here. And we'll see how we feel about the science and if, and if it's interesting or if it's kind of like, let's move this along, King. All right. So let's think about this moment. When Toomey fires at Albert, there's only enough force to drive the bullet out, but it only strikes Albert's chest and bounces off. We'll do baseball analogies. It's been, it's been going so well so far. <laughs> yeah. Is it a single, a double, a triple, or a home run or a strikeout? Well, they mentioned – so as time goes back, as they leave the airplane, that's sort of like a neutral zone where exactly. time exists. But as they leave the airplane, things start to become stale. Uh, they taste food. It doesn't taste like anything. It's yeah. Just oh, yeah. We'll, we'll break that down as we go along to see like how, how this feels in the, in the storytelling thing. Yeah. So what do you think about this, this scene and this use of, of, of science here? Single, a strikeout, single, double, triple, or a home run? Single or a double for me. Mm. I would say a double, but they also mentioned that – so it, basically he fires the bullet. Yeah. And it hits him like a little pop. It doesn't – exactly. know, it loses yeah, yeah, yeah. the momentum. Um, and they mentioned that an actor was killed on set with the same thing, what? with a blank. The Crow. Well, that no, but I looked it up because mm. I was like, oh, Brandon Lee. But that, oh, yeah, that was this is before this that. book came yeah. out before that. So it's actually an actor named John Eric Hexum, and he was on a CBS series called Cover Up. And between takes, he was fiddling around with a gun that had a blank in it, was mm. playing Russian roulette, held it to his head, shot, and the plastic casing from the blank hit him with. Blunt trauma. Because it's still force. Yeah, Yeah. but it hit and it caused a whole, you know, like massive crack in his skull and he died a couple days later. So that's actually what it's in reference to. My God. So I think the science checks out. There must have been a cover-up on cover-up because I have never heard that story until this very day. Yeah, never never heard it. I've heard the Brandon Lee story a million times, obviously. That was, we were all kind of in the middle of that. Yeah. Yeah. We were watching CBS's cover-up or whatever the hell that show was. Rest in peace, by the way, uh, Mr. Hexum. (laughs) John John Eric Hexum. J.E.H. Hexum damn near killed him. (laughs) <laughs> Hexam, I hardly knew her. Um, okay, so uh, you know, I'm going to give this a double two. It's it's intriguing. Again, it, it, there was a, it was a suspenseful moment too because yeah. you think Toomey's about to kill uh, what's her name? Um, I've uh, already forgotten Beth- her name. Bethany, Bethany, a non-entity character. Yeah, uh, about to kill her, and so Albert, you know. Uses his violin case to knock her out, and blah blah blah. Okay, all right. Well, uh, I got to quote him for that though, because he's oh like, yeah, by God, he so he smacks the villain with his guitar or his violin case, 
And he thinks to himself, by God, I never played better in my life. <laughs> wah, I, wah. There's a lot of those moments, too. I cannot. I've got a lot of thoughts on Ace Klausner. Uh, ah. mm, Sharpshooter. Yeah, sure. I'm not even going to. Yeah. Literally only in his dreams. Okay. So what do we think about this? Jenkins, his first suspicion is that all the passengers were just vaporized, utterly discorporated. Dis- Corporated. I think Di- I pronounced that correctly. Discorporated. Disco. Discorporated. Ah, discorporated. One of my yes. favorite dance moves, <laughs> uh, of course. One of my favorite eras. One of my favorite uh, U2 songs. Uh, what do we think about this theory that the people, if you woke up on the plane and people had just disappeared, how freaked out would you be? I'd be fine. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'd be V freaked out. Yeah. Um, you know, I. I the premise again is, is solid. And as far as like, I hate planes and they're claustrophobic. Mm. Um, eh, yeah, it would be bad. I'd be like, I, I don't like this. Uh, <laughs> mommy, mommy, can I go home now? Mommy, daddy, any relative really. Mm-hmm. Damn. Um, I was on an international flight once and I fell asleep and the woman next to me spilled coffee on my lap <laughs> and it really hurt. And I wouldn't mind waking up with her gone, I guess. <laughs> well, I think, think about this. So let's say these people all disappeared. Do you think that they're I think about if you get religion involved, right? You know, oh, raptured, yes. yeah. So, is it? Would you think that immediately? Would yes. you think something like, or would you think something like, their very existence is gone, including their souls? Like that person is just gone from any type of existence. Like I think about these things, and I think about. Well, that. I know I'm going to heaven, so if I wasn't raptured, I would think something was off. These people must have been evil, yeah. and they just yeah. were, were burned to death. But it does Fair. remind me of the Left Behind series because it actually opens I want to talk about on that. an airplane. With people disappearing on the plane, and the main character is also a pilot. You're totally right. I actually read those books in like yes. eighth grade, like at least the first three, and uh, I can concur. Yeah. This is correct. I think Randall Colburn, who was um, he was born again Christian years ago. He he, I think he devoured these books. But yeah, I, I was the same way. I actually thought I'll, I'll put, it's a con job. These books. Oh, absolutely. I thought it was like ooh, apocalypse, like cool. I, I even I read the first I think three I think I read I, I remember read the, the names of these also. yeah it was mm-hmm. I could tell you why I stopped too it was called uh, the first one was called Left Behind obviously Tribulation Force is the sequel and the third one is Nikolai which kind of follows the Antichrist right Nikolai Carpe but here is yeah, the yeah you think it's going to be sexy you, you think but it's, it's, not. it's not it's a bunch of like people looking up into the sky you know? mm-hmm. yeah, spoilers so, it turns out it's Obama so. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Tim Lay I'm sure that piece of trash so the the genius of these books so if, if and you you read them so you'll you'll know what I'm talking about here is that it it does have a very intriguing premise about the apocalypse and rapture right the first book and then by the second book like every 10 pages they mention like giving your life to Jesus Christ and 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 you know acknowledging your sins and then by Nikolai it's like every other page <laughs> they're talking about how how grateful they were that they have given their lives to Jesus so you realize oh this is really hmm. just propaganda Mass as a as a, a high concept fiction series, and uh, that's when I went. You're not going to get me, Mister LaHaye. I'm out of here. Yeah, I said. I think I was in eighth grade, and I I was in Catholic school at the time, despite technically being Jewish. Uh, so it really it really got me in the guilt gills. Uh, you know, just really just crammed it in there. And, and I think I had a freak out for about five minutes where I was like, I'm going to go to hell. I'm going to go to hell, which happened every other week for me um, growing up. So. Then I got so pissed by the end of the third book that I put it down and I said, never again. And that's when I lost my religion. Ah, R.E.M. style. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Haven't spoken to God since. No. Haven't sp- you know, it's funny because fellow loser Mike Ruffin, also uh, Jewish, went to a Catholic school. I'm I, raised Catholic quarter Jewish, so hey, just the good quarter, right? Hey. Uh, raised kind of Methodist, uh, was fine. We're, we're, uh, they didn't really mind when I was like, I'm not really going to go anymore. And they were fine with that. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> hey. <laughs> 
Anyway, hail Satan! Hail Satan! We're all we're all on the same page now. Thank God. Well, we're Stephen King fans, obviously. We have to be Satan worshippers. Yeah. So if you haven't read the Left Behind books, definitely go check them out. I think there's some really good value there, and uh, you should uh, turn your life around immediately. Uh, much like the pilot, and who was the uh, there was like the journalist, right? The journalist on the ground, mm-hmm. and then his skeptical college daughter who That's will right. not accept the religion, even though there's so much evidence to the contrary that God has raptured people. Like but. it's such a good premise. I mean, I think they do a great job in the leftovers. Uh, the book is good. The, the yes, that now that's a good now that's good content. That's solid content. Mm-hmm. Did you anybody give up on the leftovers after season one, or did you stick with it? I returned because I didn't like season one, Nor but everyone I. said it was really good. Seasons two and three were good. I think they were kind of overhyped. Like, I don't think it's one of the better HBO shows, you know, but there I, were some moments that were interesting. I, I watched two and three live, so I was probably responsible for a lot of that overhype, maybe, because I was just so impressed with... I thought they really shed the baggage of the first season, and it was kind of a reboot in a way. I mean, it really was a reboot. They relocated. They introduced a lot of new characters. It wasn't as heavy as that first season was, I thought. Yeah, the first season was super heavy. I mean, it's not the most enjoyable show to watch, but I, I liked the concept so much that I thought, you know. So as far as um, if, we're, if we're going Langoliers versus Left Behind <laughs> versus Leftovers. Oh, here we go. Uh, which, which one is the most likely to happen? I, I believe The Leftovers. Same. I'm going to say Left Behind. Ah, he's back for again. Yeah, I, I know. I just, I did really, actually really like that first Left Behind. Book, I, I'm telling you, it's, it's really a, good. It's entertaining. Yeah. I mean, they're, they, you know, they knew what they were doing, how to hook the kids. And if you, maybe you've seen the Nicolas Cage adaptation. I have not heard it's really bad. Wait, Nick Cage is yes, in it? Yes, he's in the, he's in the most recent Left Behind movie. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh yeah. Not, not the Kirk Cameron movies. Yeah, because that's the one that I was thinking of. And Louis Gossett Jr., of course, I think appears in some of those too. Um, I'm going to say the most likely would probably be, like I said, the leftovers, and then, you know what, and and then the the Langoliers, and then Left Behind. That's where I think that's where I stand on all that. Yeah. So, so that's the hook of the book. <laughs> We've already moved on the structure and form. We're into the science, science versus religion, apparently. So that was a fun little run here. Okay, next next little moment here that, that we discover about this and how how we felt about this. In this weird place, in this airport, in this airport terminal or in this airport, eh, period, the tarmac, whatever, there are no echoes. So you've got to get really close to hear Albert's violin when he's playing it. Laurel's high heels make small, dull thuds instead of brisk clicks. Is this science interesting or not interesting? Strikeout, single, double, triple, home run. What do we think? Was it interesting to you? Well, so sound travels through matter. Yeah. So there would have to be gas particles for sound to be conducted. So I guess True. it's suggesting that the atmosphere is slowly disappearing if sound is not carrying. I think that's I, right. Because they, they talk about it later on with the fuel, how the fuel isn't really going to work yeah. either. And there's no fizzing. And we'll talk about that. And also when they're walking, you don't hear like the steps. But solids. It's, it's like this dull, like almost yeah. like hitting your wrist against your other wrist. Which is weird because solids conduct sound actually better than any form of matter. Mm-hmm. Um, so if solids are not conducting sound, it means they're also starting to disappear, which is kind of becoming a vacuum, I guess. Oh. Well, reflecting on all of that, I don't know how realistic it is because they can still breathe and interact with matter and they're not becoming like paper thin ghosts. Um, however, I think it adds a lot to the atmosphere That's from, the from a dramatic perspective. Uh, I think it's, it's one of the creepier things like the idea that, you know, you're walking around and there's no echo. Like that's just eerie. Especially so, in the wide open space, like the outside of an airport, you know. Yeah. So for uh, you know effectiveness, guess for science, no. Therefore, double. 
A double. Mm. You're in scoring position for all the people at home listening. Mm-hmm. Wait, what, what did you say it was? I'm going to call that a bean ball. Just oh, we got take, oh, take, we got hit. Take your base. Wow, rough. Lacey's on first base. Yeah, I like this idea. Uh, you know, I, I, this is King being able to do whatever he wants because this is literally his world. This isn't like you're basing it on an actual event that's happened or an actual place you can go to where you can cheat the rules. No, you can cheat the rules here because he's just totally making up on the not on the fly. I'm, I'm assuming he did some research on, on the fly. How this would work <laughs> on the fly ball? A can of corn. <laughs> wow, great. There you go. Great, great baseball material <laughs> for all of you baseball fans out there. Okay, this is this kind of grossed me out. This is how I feel about eating healthy food, actually. Uh, when they eat sandwiches, they say it tastes like paper. It has no taste. How do you feel about that? That's disgusting to me. Yeah, I thought that was a little weird because they were hungry. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the characters mentions that they need food to kind of level their well, heads. Well, yeah, we'll talk about that character. But, I mean, if you've had, like, oatmeal or water, it just kind of doesn't really taste like anything. So they should be able to just swallow it. Well, Instead, th- they kind of chew it and spit it out as if it's gross. But if it tastes like nothing, I mean... Yeah, suck it down. Yeah, suck go for it. it. Well, that, that's another section later on. <laughs> but... um I am disgusted when I eat, like, salads. I feel like I just get really upset. I'm just like, let me just go out here and just start mowing down this grass. I mean, what, what am I doing? I feel like the Lawnmower Man short story where he's eating grass. I'm against it. I uh, I follow the Al Michaels subscription. He says he's never had a salad in his life, and he's 85 years old. So I'm going to see what Dan is perplexed. <laughs> this I, is the awful. I, I like vegetables. Yeah, if you, if you don't like vegetables, you just haven't had them. You know, I like, I, I've liked, I like, you know, your, your basic, like, your onions. I like... <laughs> Like onions and potato. You're just like eating root vegetables potato. out of the ground. I like spinach, actually. Surprisingly enough, I like I've, I've liked spinach, but uh, right. kale. Does it have to be cooked? Get out of here! Uh, no, no. I'll eat it. I'll, so, I'll eat so, the leafy. Yeah, that's how I eat most salads. I just get the baby spinach and then I throw some other vegetables on there, and it's, it's pretty nice. What vegetables are you throwing on there? I got you get a tomato, a little bit of avocado. That's that's the thing. That's what I learned, yeah. uh, and I refuse to accept it. That tomato that people t- people tell me that tomato is not a vegetable. They it's tell a fr- me it's, it's a fruit, actually a fruit, yeah, which is insane to me. Yeah, I mean, yes, technically it's a fruit, but in the context of a salad, it might as well be a vegetable. Let's not do a hot dog as a sandwich kind of thing here. You know, Oof, you know no, what I'm saying? Sandwich. I've actually seen Justin eat spinach before, though. But he yeah. grabs a can and squeezes it. Yeah, and it goes in the air into his mouth. You see his, how strong I get. His muscles get really big, and you have that battleship tattoo that like starts moving. Yeah, it's just your forearm that gets really big. Though, and like, I can't see it on my left eye. That's the only problem. I got a big squint, but I do. Make Funny noises like Popeye humor in the Langoliers episode. We did it. We get is that bingo? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think baseball checklist salad yeah. talk. Okay, this is kind of creepy. I want to talk about a certain celebrity I learned who's got the same condition here. In this in this world that they find themselves in, there is no smell. What do you think about that? Once I got a really bad cold, sinus infection, mm. and my my sense of smell didn't come back for like three weeks, and. Scared me. I thought this is what it's like to live in a in a world without one of my senses, and uh, it was real real bummer. I couldn't. I would I would test it every day by sniffing a scented candle that my friend made, and it normally has a very powerful aroma that's quite delightful. Um, and yet, I could not smell. Mm. So I'm going to go with it's a it's a bad thing to experience. That's all I have to say. Yeah, I guess if I had to get rid of one of my senses, smell would probably be the first to go. Just mm. in the, same the hierarchy, but. Yeah, I, I also suffer from seasonal allergies, so yeah. there'll be like sections of the year where I'm not really smelling much. I don't smell so good, you could say. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> That's year round. That's not even seasonal. Uh, I would say this: I love to eat, and I love to smell the world around me. What can I say? Especially when I'm walking in certain areas in Chicago. 
But I learned that Jason Sudeikis does not have a sense of smell. Wow. What do you think about that? Horrible Bosses and Horrible Bosses 2's own Jason Sudeikis cannot smell. Well, I guess he also lacks taste. No. No, he's, he's fine. He's hey, fine. God bless Jason. Come yeah. on the podcast. His, uh, of course, his wife, Olivia Wilde, Wild has oh, book smart out, which is supposed to be amazing. That's what mar- she wait, says. Wait, he's married yeah. to Olivia Wilde? Yeah, for years now. Or, or I don't know if they're married, but they're partners with a kid. They've been, they've been together for a long time. Huh. So there you go. She's too hot for him. Anyway. <laughs> She's too hot. Hey, you know what? Love is blind, which is another sense. Yeah. <laughs> but they can all see here just fine. Everything's visual. That's fine. Uh, okay. Matches that they bring with them from the airplane will work. This is a pretty pivotal point in the book. So that'll work, right? But matches in the mysterious world do not light when struck. Intriguing. Single, double, triple, or home run. How intriguing is this? I mean, I'm going with, I think I'm just going to go like vaguely double across the board, like one where they just barely made the double. Mm. Um, you know, they slid into second. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, oh, okay, you should have, that should have been easy. You kind of fumbled the ball for a second there. Is that, that's how baseball works, right? Uh, yeah, because you're, you're anticipating that you're going to be able to get in with no problem. Right. Or that they would, they would, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, to you're me. like, ah, and then you're like, oh, come on. And then they just make the double. And you have to make the ah noise yeah, yeah, as you, you got, slide ah, into second. That's, that's what true. all the sports boys do. Uh, that's what we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought the, so the matches kind of set up the solution. Yes. So they remove the matches, matches that have been on the plane, the sort of neutral mm-hmm. DMZ, I guess. When they come off, they still work, but they're starting to fade in their effectiveness. Yes. Right. Whereas matches that are in the airport, pretty much anything that's been in the airport is losing itself to time. So they're able to deduce that bringing something out of the plane, it still works. So in theory, bringing something onto the plane can reactivate its effectiveness. I think in terms of the plotting and the uh, the visual intrigue, I would say this is actually probably a home run because this is pivotal. Of all the other things we've discussed, it's not going to be th- – those other things are not tantamount to their survival. But this knowledge helps them get out of there just in time. So I'm like, yeah. home run. A solo home run. Don't get excited. No grand slams here. But uh, – <laughs> I'm in. I'm in on this. I'm in on this. I like this. Okay. I think you mentioned this. You teach this, Dan. But Albert, the old uh, ace, ace himself. Mm-hmm. Fastest Not, Hebrew this side of the Mississippi. Uh, he has a cowboy fan. No question. I, I don't know if you realize this, but he's, um, this character's Jewish. Oh, really? Did you notice that? Did you, did you pick up on that during the, uh, the novella? I have to read it again. Yeah. A couple times back I mentioned Back to back. It. Um, I, I just picture like Woody Allen as like this teenage <laughs> kid, kid, like this nebbish like, kid. Like, we oh, gotta get back vague. on the plane. I, uh, the langoliers are kind of coming. <laughs> Boy, they um, those look like some langoliers uh, on the horizon. Uh, my, my, my mother, folks. <laughs> okay, so his theory, though, Albert's theory, is good. He 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 he's the one that discovers that they they brought their own time with him with them, right? And that things from the outside smell normal, taste normal, but but will work within the confines of the plane. So, for instance, if they bring those matches from this nether or this weird world into the plane. They will work. Therefore, they can get gas, fuel into the plane, yeah. and it will work. Okay. Home run. I'm, I'm, saying, I'm saying a home run. You home know run what, for science. What would have been cool is if they realized it because, like, the longer they stayed in the terminal, the more they, they themselves became. I mean, I think they get into that a little mm. bit with, like, the scent. Like, he's, like, Albert grabs Bethany and starts sniffing her or whatever. Um, and he's, like, the scent is there but fading. But I think it would have been cooler if, like, they were almost becoming, like, the Back to the Future photo, you know, like, uh, fading. Yeah, and yeah. then they were, like, oh, shit, we have to get back on the plane. I think that would have made the the logic a little tighter for things expiring slowly in this in this world. Um, I agree 100%. But I then know. I realized that if they did that, though, 
then there would be no Langoliers to eat them away. Well, right, because, well, the Langoliers are eating everything else, so they would have still eaten them. But, like, maybe if they were just... Like, Look, this like, is a note from your editor, Stevie. <laughs> 20, 30 years later. You've got to listen to it. Uh, Dan, what do you think? About the concept of reintroducing things to the plane? Sure. Um, yeah, I think it's effective because the whole problem is they need to get back on the plane, but to do that, they need to refuel... And the only fuel that's available is planes that are already in this past time. Mm-hmm. So I think the matches for the cigarette is a clever device. It's one of the few that are actually in this story. It's one. Of the, it's strange that they had Albert be the one to deduce this and not the writer. Well, once Albert deduces it, the writer kind of goes and takes the concept. And he's like, well, look, I'm a mystery writer. I deduce for a living. I should, <laughs> um, I should do more of Dean Stockwell, but I'll save that for the film portion. Oh, I will um, save that for the miniseries. But, but no, but he kind of... It kind of becomes a telling and not a showing. Once they figure out the matches thing, the mystery writer's like, here's what I think, and lays out his theory, I've which everyone that. sort of just accepts. <laughs> and I guess selling yeah. novelist. Yeah, Every- even, even as a book reader. And I could see that as maybe Stephen King being, you know, he has a writer in every one of his stories, and that's kind of his little omniscient. I- I feel like everything has to be laid out in this story as a monologue, or it just doesn't work, uh, which I disagree with and hate. There's a lot of laying things out in this in this novella. Okay, I here's something I kind of like though. This is this is this is Jenkins describing what the Langoliers do. I like this. Now we know, don't we? What happens to today when it becomes yesterday? What happens to the present when it becomes the past? It waits, dead and empty and deserted. It waits for them. It waits for the timekeepers of eternity, always running along behind, cleaning up the mess in the most efficient way possible by eating it. Um, I'm, I'm always bothered by the idea of kind of uh, like infinity, the idea of how space, even talking about it out loud is going to freak me out. There's no end, really. It just keeps going on and on. Numbers go on forever. You, there's no ending to numbers. And so this idea, which is almost kind of the opposite, which is just the, fin- the finality of it all. And like I mentioned earlier with the, the possible quote, unquote, like the rapture, like what happened to these people just totally disappearing? Does their very existence just, is it just gone? Like, are they forgotten or how does this work with this world? We don't really explore that because by the time they land, they're so happy that they've landed that all the awful things that happened <laughs> is totally forgotten. Right. And I, I don't wanna, know what happened. Yeah. I want to see how that would play out legally. I, I kept thinking about that. Like, how many trials would there be? <laughs> you <know? laughs> right. So you murdered this person and left him back on the other planet? But anyway, that's all. We'll get into that part in the next section. This, this part kind of chilled me a little bit. I, I like this. I'm going to give this a triple. I can't give it the home run. Just the quote itself, like that, the whole The idea. If if that is indeed what they do. Yeah, I'm going to go triple, too. I I do like the idea. I like the thought because, you know, it's why nostalgia is useless. You know, I feel like Mm. there's some kind of uh, spiritual truth in that, like that sense of every time you look to the past, you're looking into the void, you know? And so I feel like as a time travel sci-fi concept, I think it's unique. I think it's a little haunting. And I I feel like it it resonates a little bit. Again, I think I really think this would have been a very good like short story. Mm-hmm. Like, don't doesn't just if it was a little less long, a little tighter, it would have been really cool and haunting. But unfortunately, it's a uh, longer than it needs to be. It's almost the, it's basically the length of an actual some of his novels for yeah. God's sakes. Damn, yeah, yeah, I think it's a good uh, idea, but poor execution. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of getting trapped back in time and not knowing how to work your way to the present. It's pretty freaky. I also was afraid of infinity, and maybe that's sort of the being raised Catholic thing. Mm. Yeah. The idea of eternity was terrifying to me. If you're bad, I actually when I was, will get you too. When I was little, I was so afraid of in 
eternity, you know, going to heaven or hell forever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was like four or five and I actually went to my parents' room crying and they're like, what's the matter? And I was like, I'm thinking about infinity. <laughs> so you did not subscribe to uh, Bruce Dickinson's lyrics of uh, From Here to Eternity where he says, hell ain't a bad place. Hell is from here to eternity. You were okay with that for Iron Maiden? Well, I, I guess, uh, what is it? Heaven for the view, hell for the company. Ah, gotcha. I'll take some of you, about nostalgia and looking back is like looking to the void. I'll say I think it's okay to look back occasionally. I mean, after all, this is a Stephen King podcast. Yeah, I mean, we're but, all doing but, it. Yeah, but I'll say it's okay to look back every once in a while and discuss, but it's another thing to live in it. You can't live in it. And right. I think that's kind of, there's maybe an analogy here. You yeah. can't live, literally, you can't live in the past or... Time will eat you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think it's actually from Latin, not to get hung up on nostalgia, but it's Mm. the pain that you feel when looking back to the past. So it is something that it can hurt you actually by living there. I agree with you, though. I'm I'm kind of anti-nostalgia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Things get misremembered and sort of romanticized. I think, I think, you know, the older we get, the more and more that becomes more apparent. Like we think about, oh, I wish I could go back to 1986 and relive the first time I watched, you know, fucking, I don't know, The Goonies or something like that. But at the same time... Think about the world in 1986 and where we were. Like, think about the AIDS panic and things like that. Like, no, why would you want to really go back? It's almost selfish in a way to want to live in, that, in these eras. Think but. of 1995, where classics such as the Langoliers the were Lang- on our television. Like, oh, I wish I could go back that to, the, to those two nights that one week and, and, and relive the, the two hours with commercials every night. Yeah, with commercials. Of the no Langoliers. Less. God, it was like four hours with commercials, too. I was so mad at the end of that, but I can't wait to talk about that miniseries. Okay, so yeah, that's cool. Here's something that I have a problem with, because at this point, when they've taken off, I'm just about ready for this story to be done, if I wasn't ready for a while now. Okay. Just before they re-enter the Aurora, the Aurora Borealis, did I pronounce that right? Yes. Close enough. I nailed it before we started recording, and now I'm just mm, going to stumble over it's it. It's the Orborals. I think it's called the Aurum Borealis. It's the, di- the Disco Parade. It's as close as you're going to get. The Justin. Disco Borealis. <laughs> One of my favorite meals. Jenkins, of course, he's back. Forget Ace. Jenkins is back on the case here. Jenkins realizes that when they cross back through the time rip, that they've got to be asleep or they will disappear like the others. So this is, they're like, this is too short. We got to make this a longer novella. (laughs) Please figure this out. Um, This, I mean, this makes sense to me. It makes sense. But as a reader, I was checked out. I was checked out. So I'm going to give it a single because it makes sense, but I'm not, I'm not enthralled by this by any means. Yeah, I don't know how to score it because, of course, they had to be asleep to go back because that was how they came through. I mean, yeah. I don't, I don't. There's no explanation of why the sleep preserves them in any way. But uh, if you're, if we're using the internal rules of the book, of course, they have to be asleep. It infuriated me that it took them until literally the last <laughs> second to remember that because that's what I was thinking about the whole time. Like, if they manage to get back, how are they all going to be asleep? You know, and like so the fact that ugh, it's just it, I was screaming at my book, screaming at it, mm-hmm. which I do often alone. Yeah, the, one of the which I also did. One of the first things they identify is that they were all asleep, and that's how they ex- you know still exist on the plane. So it is kind of funny that it takes them almost to the last minute to be like, oh wait, we all need to go back to sleep to cross over. And I guess as a concept. I don't know if your consciousness is suspended, your physical form. Yeah, he doesn't really. I feel like if if this was a novel, I think that they would have gone to more detail with that. I think they would have gone to more detail with what likely happened to the people and and things like that. I think you just kind of accept it. And it's it's not deeper than it really is. I mean, it checks out scientifically. But as a reader, I was like, do we need another act? Are we, have we not stretched us out enough? I just feel like every decision that gets made in this book gets like spread 
through about 10 pages more than it needs to be. Like that yes. should have been, they should have been able to come up with that. They should ugh, just like crunch the time a little bit here, guys. Imagine if this was a short story that started off with these people having already landed at this uh, airport tarmac. And then kind of, you know, you, you get a little exposition as to like how they got there and everything else. But that, it starts off with these people, these 10 people from this, air, this airplane in this strange world and this is happening. And we find out like how they got there along the way. Like that would work better for me. Like it takes too long to get going mm-hmm. and it takes too long to get the hell out. So from, much exposition. The, the novel. Yeah, there's so much exposition. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, it's almost like he's so impressed with the science he's presenting. He's got a really like foolproof of like, no, this really means this because X is Y and Y is Z. And, and trust us, Jenkins, the mystery writer, is saying it, so it's got to be right. No <laughs> scientists worry. are saying it, but the mystery writer is saying it. Don't worry, I have this man to explain it to you. <laughs> Uh, Laurel, wake up. Um, stop gazing at Nick. <laughs> Bad boy Nick. Okay. Last bit of science. The end of the book, when they get back, they do realize that the time rip brought them into the future, and they have to wait a few minutes for time to catch up to them. I like this idea. It, ma- it checks out. It makes sense. You know, it's, They're screwing with time when they go back. It makes sense. It stands to reason that time would be a little bit screwy when they go forward. I like the idea of... How, do you, how would you explain it? It's not them catching up to time. It's time catching up to them, I guess, right? Yeah. Or they'll eat time. Maybe they'll, they'll be the new Langoliers. Yeah, this is how you become a Langolier. That would have been a good twist that, ending. Yeah, yeah. Actually, <laughs> that, God, that would have been a good That's twist. That's a really good idea. Um, All right, we're yeah, going to do this. Well, this could be like the, uh, the, the, uh, the gunslinger when they, he went back and rewrote the gunslinger. Yeah. Let's give that ending. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say, um, so what's weird is when they're in, in the past, it takes a few hours, presumably, mm-hmm. for the Langoliers to catch up to them. But once they go to the future, it just seems like within minutes, time catches up. Yeah. I almost think they should have had to wait around a couple hours for time to catch up. I mean, that would have added to the story. Eating but sandwiches. Like, I like yeah. the, but at least there's taste to them. Mm-hmm. But I, or there gradually is taste. But I, I kind of, now I'm talking myself out of this. I, I like the science. I understand the science and how this could possibly happen. And King's science, at least. But it would have been a lot creepier if it was just open-ended, right? If they got back and then they were like, well, maybe if we wait, this will happen. And then there's some weird off note and it just kind of ends. Well, I think it's funny, too, that they, as they're like reincorporating, they back up against the wall so that they're not touching anyone. And I yeah. was like, what would happen if you were in like your ghost form? I thought and you about put that. your arm through a person and then materialize. Yeah, it's like the fly kind of a situation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it's OK. I, I, I don't know. I, well, I, my question is, how far into the future does like the airport extend? Like if you if you theoretically went through a number of time rips is everything that is going to be the future already laid out for us? Like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, the, like the airport is there, but it's there because it's already in the present. And they know that like, so, so does that mean if they went 15 minutes into the future and somebody had set off a bomb in the airport, they would have been like in an exploded airport. Where does the human agency begin with what this future is? Like, it's weird that the, these buildings are there but the people aren't, you know, how, and this is where I'm going to get myself freaked out thinking about like how far into the future does that path of light extend with the humming and yada, yada, yada. Anyway. Is there any agency? Mm-hmm. Are they saying, or is all this just kind of laid out and right. they went ahead of it? Yeah. That's, that, that's kind of creepy to me, I guess. Mm-hmm. So much for Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series where everything is just faded out anyway, you know, do whatever you want to do, I guess, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Live your life, as uh, T.I. and Rihanna once told us. Hey. Um, I feel like if I imitate any more, it's going to come off as inappropriate. So, anyway, <laughs> good song though. What do you want to say? Steady stacking that paper. That's right. Ti got arrested recently, didn't he? I he think, he's uh, constantly getting arrested. He's but. he's doing all right. He had a very funny video though. Where um, you see the video of him in the White House? No. They they cut him in the White House 
um, in the actual Oval Office, like wait, like Trump is like going on his helicopter and leaving, and then they've got Melania stand in. Yeah, she's a into the office, and uh, they get into some hijinks. Exotic dancer. Uh oh. Oh, it's one of those. It's one of those. I get it. Do you understand what happens to everybody? <laughs> <laughs> they have a conversation, and like, what are you doing with, with them? No. All right. Hey, thanks for sticking with us for, for our science. Our yeah, I feel science weird. segment. I kind of like this. This is fun. I feel weird calling it science at all, but uh, King Science, King Science, Doctor King, the Science Guy. Got it. Section. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, this is the part I've been looking forward to. I've got some notes. We're going to move on to our next section called Heroes and Villains. I'm going to have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the Losers Club, asshole. <laughs> Okay, I've kind of got this laid out in terms of, uh, like, in order of appearance. It's, it's hard to, I don't want to do, like, you know, best to worst, because I think the best character is actually one of the last people introduced. First person we meet, Mr. Brian Engel. He's the pilot. Captain. Ca- I apologize. Ooh. You're right. Captain Brian Engel. He's the airline pilot. He's just found out his ex-wife died. And in this a is, fire. In a fire, by the way. This is very strange. I want to point this out. Um, it's also revealed that he hit her once um, when drunk during an argument. It's the same thing that Guard does in the Tommyknockers. He also, I should say, he shot his ex, his wife, uh, while he was drunk in an argument. I think that's a weird thing for like the, one of the pseudo protagonists to have uh, in common. And and Jack Jack uh, Torrance, yeah. yeah, obviously abused his uh, kid and tried to murder his kid and and wife too, and in a quote unquote like a drunken rage. I think uh, Uncle Stevie and I need to sit down and have a talk. <laughs> that's right. At least he stopped drinking at this point. Um, <laughs> yeah, post Tommy Knockers, pretty uh, a sober Stevie, as we like to call. It. Hashtag sober Stevie. Mm-hmm. Uh, this character is presented to me at least. Um, you think he's going to be the, the main protagonist, right? I, you think he was, he was all going to be through his eyes, at least reading yeah, the short story? I, I thought novella? so. Just be, I mean, he's the captain. It's sort of, we get so much drama with the wife death that you mm-hmm. think it's going to be a more integral part of the plot than it is. Well, he's got the dream, I guess. Yeah. And I wonder how much of that dream is truly informed by just his, his guilt or, like we talked about earlier, like the fates. Like, this is going to happen, so keep these things in mind about, the, about losing oxygen in the plane. Yeah, I think he's got planes on the brain. Plans um, the brain. But the captain, I, I actually, if I didn't know where this book was going, I think it would be a cool intro because it takes such a quick, harsh turn. Yeah. Um, I also like, though, that the captain has, it just sounds like a day from hell. He flew from, I believe, Tokyo to L.A., mm-hmm. which is a very long flight. And he actually flew that plane. Yeah, yeah, he flew that plane, landed it, and he's just, he has, like, a throbbing headache. He's looking for, like, headache medicine. And then he finds out his ex-wife died. It brings up all these old feelings. And as he's flying from Tokyo to L.A., he's like, oh, God, L.A., at least it's not Logan Airport in Boston. <laughs> and guess immediately where he has to fly. That, that's after, of course, they all wake up to, which is perfect. Yeah. yeah. So then he has to, you know, fly to the airport as a passenger to the airport that he hates cross country. It just seems like such a, you know, trek for him. And this is all interesting, right? But here's the problem with this book is, is that King is so good at writing ensembles. I mean, look, like, like, like world building towns and everything like that. And he's got time to do that here because there's literally only 10 people, essentially. There's no other people popping up here and there. And I, I just found it really incredible that there are just so many unforget. I mean, I'm sorry, excuse me. There are so many forgettable characters in yeah. this book. There are people like, I literally had to kind of go back and be like, what was this person's name? And what did this person do again? It was very hard to follow the, the people in this. And that was a, that's a knock on King's writing here. Yeah. I, I mean, it, I think it's, they serve no function except to move the plot along at various mm-hmm. points. We don't really 
get much of their interior lives besides a one liner like I'm going to rehab. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like, is that all the work we're going to do to establish sympathy or you know, anything for these characters? And and there's so many superfluous characters too. Mm. Like they could have easily condensed the like at least two or three people out of this. You know, no question yeah, about they, it. They also when they introduce the characters, they don't say their names right away. They describe their clothing. So it's Hard Rock Cafe T-shirt. Flattered suit jacket. Somebody's guy. sleeping. Somebody's hungry. Like, what are, yeah. they, are they? Is this person the same person who was also sleeping, but is now awake and is hungry? Like, I, I, tell well, me who's, what's happening here. And to Lara's point, um, I think so. There's 11 characters in the book, and I believe the miniseries only has 10. That's so they correct. They figured that out. They, the sleeping, the sleeping trim comic the, relief. Trim the fat. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. not not enough. They should have trimmed it out about three hours. Yeah. The, R- Rory, oof, the hungry oof. man, the man who's there to be hungry. Ugh, Rory. Very necessary character. I'm not kidding, Laura. I didn't even have his name down because I couldn't. I think I wrote down hungry guy because I'd forgotten his actual name. Oh, I had to re-Google all, oh, all of them just for my own notes. All right, so that's my that's my initial problem because you, you think again Brian's gonna be the main person here, and he kind of takes a back seat to to Nick really for most of the book. They they tease that there's gonna be some big head to head later on, but it never happens. They kind of just remain friendly, you know. They kind of accept their roles here, and yeah, Brian doesn't really. I mean, other than being the pilot, that's kind of the only purpose he serves because he doesn't solve any of the problems other than piloting the plane. He doesn't figure out solutions. This is all left to other characters. Yeah, he doesn't really get involved in any of the violence. It's true. He's always just there. Well, I guess yeah. he and Nick work out that when they are on the plane, he is the captain. And then when they're off the plane, Nick says, I am captain now. Thank you very much. We, we did not rehearse that. That's just great improv happening I, here I at the Club. I saw that live, and I can, I can tell you they're telling the truth. <laughs> oh, yes. I hope you enjoyed that, everybody. All right, the next character we meet here. Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, Dinah Bellman, who is blind. She what? is. Did you know this, by the way? Huh. She's blind. She's blind. Okay. She is uh, on her way to get surgery, uh, I guess, surgery on her for her vision so she can finally see. Was this was there's, this a science around 30 years ago? Am I crazy? Yeah, there, there's surgeries you can have that. It depends on how blind, bad you're. It depends yeah. on yeah. what type of blindness you have. I think exactly. they even said it has like a X percent chance of working, but mm-hmm. they're willing to take it so that she could they, see. They did say, I think, that she was blind from birth. And usually yeah. if that's the case, the surgery would not work. So immediate um, fail. This immediate—I almost put down the book. I, mean, I was like, <laughs> "Wait, birth!" Uh, but her big thing, believe it or not, besides being blind, even though it's an attribute, is I think she's got the shine, right? Yeah, she's got the shine. Well, yeah. we can say that for Kings of Many later on. But she seems to be aware that there's something wrong with a character by the name of Mister Toomey. We'll definitely be talking about later on. Um, she's able to kind of use what he's seeing in his mind to work against him and, and for them, especially at the very end. And she is almost like a, a spiritual presence, especially near the end when she's about to die. Yeah, she's sort of wise beyond her years. And I think King often has the children with the shine mm-hmm. coming out during a stressful event. So it makes sense that if they're going through this time warp, her shine would really start firing up. Um, and that's a theme to children noticing things that adults miss. At yes. the end of the book, when they reappear at the airport, these kids point out like, look, mommy, daddy, new people. And the mm-hmm. dad's like, just come here, you goddamn kids. It, it's very much <laughs> harkens back to it, you know, with the kids and, and, the, and the adults not believing the kids, essentially. Yeah. Also, her, her senses are much more heightened, too. I mean, like I said, she's able to hear people really well from far away. I think that's why she's the first of them to hear the quote unquote Langoliers coming. And, and again, they don't believe her at first. They just think that she's stressed out. But yeah. there is something actually no, going wrong. And, I, you know, not to tie it back too much, but to the Dark Tower, you know, they Kim, yeah, King. Crimson King. Nah. There we go. Me, me, me. 
Um, Aurora Borealis. But, yeah, but they, they employ a bunch of children as the breakers to mm-hmm. break the beam. So there's scores and scores of these people scattered all around the galaxy. And I'll tell just, you what, Dinah, children. Dinah would have been there if she had been stabbed. She definitely would have been kidnapped. I, I want to say, too, Dinah, when I was younger, uh, I loved Ghostbusters. And I always thought her name was Dinah and it's Dana. Oh, yeah. I think I had trouble pronouncing it, but I've just always really liked that name, Dinah. It's not something you hear. Well, see, I know she's in the often. kitchen a lot. Yeah. Someone's in hmm. the kitchen with Dinah. Someone's in the kitchen. I yo, 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 yo. Someone's in the kitchen with Dinah. Strumming on the old banjo. Boom, boom. Should have been strumming on the violin. That was... That's our next character, Albert Klausner. Wow. Okay. How about sorry, that? I need to take a second after that performance. Um, oh, please. I'm yeah. sorry. I threw everybody off here. I apologize. Um, yeah, our next character, Albert Klausner. We mentioned him. Laurie, I think you were chomping at the bits to talk about Ace. Well, it's funny that I did that because the only note I wrote was, I fucking hate this kid. <laughs> um, I, it's just like, like, why? I don't know. Like, why do you got to? Hmm. This kid's like wishful thinking, apparently. Yeah. You know? I, it's like the nerdy kid that is turns out to be a cool guy. You know, I, yeah. I don't know. Like in the toaster thing. And you're just like, God, he's just yeah. lame. I don't, I don't like him. He's apparently like a, I don't know if he's a prodigy, but he's a teen violinist. He's on his way to Berkeley. Um Hey, great school for music, by the way, out there. I like how everybody what? here has got like major moments happening in their life. Like, why can't somebody just be like, oh, I'm visiting some family members? I mean, yeah. Bethany is kind of later on. But yeah, Albert, um, the big thing about in this story, though, is that he he dreams of having the courage of um, of a cowboy. Of a gunslinger. Of a gunslinger, especially. Uh, King's Dominion there, too. Um, he refers to himself, I think, Laura, I think you might have said it. One of you did. Ace, not Albert, but Ace Cosner, the fastest Hebrew West of the Mississippi. That was a sigh. Yeah, that was a sigh. Mitski had an album called Be the Cowboy. Came out last year, a great album. And then Mac DeMarco had a song or an album coming out called like Becoming the Cowboy or something like that. Anyway, what do you like more, Mitski or Mac DeMarco? <laughs> uh, I actually like Mac DeMarco a lot. but uh, You know, I saw Mac DeMarco. Here's kind I like of a tangent. Too, but I, I like I like the Mitski album a lot, actually. Yeah. But uh, I saw Mac DeMarco at the hideout. AV or is AV Club's hideout test used to have? Yeah. At the hideout. Um, he performed. It's kind of like a slack rock thing. And I was a little, I was being a little jerk during the set. I'll say I was in the background kind of mocking him, you know, but that's my problem. You were heckling him? Oh, no, no. He couldn't hear me. I was way in the back, but I was kind of like, you know, like oh, Mac DeMarco, you know? Oh, um, my name is Mac. Hey, my, my brother's name is Mac. He's an idiot too. <laughs> it's one of those things. Sorry, Mac, if you're listening, I love you. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, Mitski, be the cowboy album. Uh, yeah, this character kind of sucks, but again, he does come up with the idea that of how to get out of there, essentially, how to get back on the plane and get out of town. But any other character could have done that. Like again, <laughs> like so, yeah. it's just like let's condense some of these pieces of shit, make a big shit person. I'll stop talking. Well, yeah. the shit person, like you said, does uh, figure out, figure out, like it's some genius thing. He wraps toaster like in a tablecloth, right? It makes like a, makes like uh, a mace. Yeah. Makeshift mace, I guess you call it. And um, takes down Toomey. Uh, a little too late. Thanks a lot, Ace. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it takes him down nonetheless. But I think a couple times, I, I think uh, Ace's purpose, though, him and Bethany are just kind of to represent young love. Oh, God, um, yeah. It's because, so bad. Because there are a couple love stories, and this is the one that is more believable to me, that, you know, young people that are maybe inexperienced, if you're facing death... If you, you had to compare wanna, this to the Nick and right, Laurel which feels very quote-unquote love story, Ugh. which right. is incredibly bad. But, I, but, um, yeah. but, but the whole idea of, like, you know, they're, he's presumably a virgin and hasn't really kissed a girl, and oh, yeah, you know, that's, that's, well, that's he does something too. heroic, and then, you know, he, 
they start making out and they, you know, it just like it. I, I bought that. Like, I think yeah. that was especially younger people that age. And Bethany seems like, you know, she's maybe. And they're under stress. They're teenagers. They're horny. She's going to rehab. She's going know. to rehab. I mean, this is all. Yeah. It's all tying together. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of love, here we go. Uh, James Bond himself, Nick Hopewell. So this book was written. This has been around the time of Timothy Dalton as James Bond, right? So I did keep thinking about Timothy Dalton in this role because this guy kind of does seem like a low grade. Well, less than many series, I guess, but. This guy does seem like a, like a lower-grade James Bond, like James Bond going on vacation, essentially. Uh, yeah. He's the one who he, he says he works as a junior attache for the British Embassy, but really fixes things that need fixing for Her Majesty. So he's a real bad boy, as we learned, too. He's a real—he doesn't take no for an answer, and mm. he, he takes charge. He, he, you know, takes Toomey's nose and, like, threatens to break it and, you know— Yeah, he grabs life by the nose. And just grabs life by the nose, yeah. Rusts away. Yeah, and they imply that he was involved in the troubles in Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, Northern Ireland was separating from the United Kingdom, so he went to Belfast and did some shady things there. I wonder if he knew Liam Neeson. <laughs> oh, <God>. uh, Next topic. <laughs> no, um, so this character, once again, like all these characters have to have like these these incredible, I guess, characteristics, even though at the end of the day, so many of them are forgettable in the grand scheme of King's work, you know? Like this guy's basically James Bond, the plane. We got this... Prodigy violinist. We've got this blind girl with the shine, which you think would be captivating. And then I guess Brian hit his wife when he was drunk once. But <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I will say one thing though about um, Nick. Mm. I wondered if it would have been better. Maybe now we would have made him like an air marshal who uh, fell asleep on the job and yes. then felt guilty. I think that would have made more sense than having Ooh. like a British secret yeah, agent. Yeah, I think that would be like way more believable because I, I, as far as Nick's character goes, well, one, do you think he's British? I don't know. Do they do they he, mention him speaking any? I don't know. Some uh, of the British dialogue, slang? the dialogue might suggest that he's British, but uh, I actually I, I wanted to puke every time I read one of the lines because of just how thick he was laying it out and with the British stuff. But his character makes decisions that I don't feel like you need to be an MI6 agent to make. Like, hey, maybe we should like beat up and tie the, up the guy that tried to murder someone. Like, uh, you know, and, and Laurel's like, why did you have to be so rough? You know, and it's just like, come on, like, like he makes logical decisions. I do think it would make more sense to have him be a air marshal, something like that. And MI6 is just so over the top. Well, and they set up the ending in a way where you think oh, this is his big redemption moment, but they don't really ha- the whole. No- Vela, there's not really him showing a lot of remorse for the things he's done until yeah. that very last moment where he's like, I'm going to do this because I've been a bad boy, essentially. You mm-hmm. know, like, well, where was this character before? They, they, didn't, yeah. they didn't really dive into that at all. And I know it's a novella, but listen, it's a long novella. They couldn't give me like another page or two of that guy's backstory. I yeah, it's something Bothersome. to like, yeah, it was just, it was long in places where it didn't need to be in short when it needed to be a little longer. That's perfect explanation of this novella, actually. <laughs> They, they 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 stretch out the things that don't need to be stretched out, and yeah, and then they leave us with they basically leave us with people running back and forth across a, tar- a tarmac, yeah. right? That's basically the Langoliers, people taking off and landing, and then running across tarmacs for you know three hundred pages. Do what do we think about his big sacrifice at the end? Is it earned? I don't think it's earned. I think it's kind of just lame. Like he's being the hero. Like why is Nick the hero all of a sudden here? Yeah. yeah. So the context is that they realize to go back through the wormhole. They all need to be asleep, so they have to drop the pressure in the cabin, yep. and he wears an oxygen mask. However, the thing I didn't get is, how does the pressure return to normal? If he disappears, 
right? That the captain well, he, has to wake he up. Has to, I think he flips the switch at the yeah, last minute. Right. That's why he's had to stay awake. It just seems like the timing, though, is just so weird where it's like, well, what if he disappeared before he switched it? You know, it, it, I was like, this is kind of a crazy plan. I kept thinking, there wasn't. isn't there any other way for them to all survive? I kept thinking that, too. Like, isn't there a way for him to kind of, at the, the last second, or like... Because you can depressurize the cabin, but can you have the actual cockpit be unaffected? You know what? I made the wrong choices in life. I had not enter the um, the academy to become a pilot, so I don't know. I don't, I don't know the answers. Mm. Well, oh, go ahead. As a Top Gun, I can tell. I, oh. I didn't have anything <laughs> to say. I didn't just keep. You can you can talk. Uh, no, well, the one thing too, they point out that Nick might know like a sleeper choke. You know, oh, there's a, a bunch agent. of that. So what they do though is they have him break his arm, and he's like, "Oh, sorry, mate, I can't do anything with this." Yeah. Not a good British accent, but you know it's He kept reminding me what of like an do? Australian almost, Boy, like all the mateys, you know, hey, matey. Uh, I, I thought about Crocodile Dundee a lot reading this, even though he's obviously not supposed to be Australian. It, it read much more Australian because I don't think I've ever heard a British character say "mate" this many times. It's like you call that a Langaree Lou? <laughs> <laughs> I'll take you down under to me. Um, Let's talk about. <laughs> I call that a toaster. You call this is a toaster. Now this is a toaster. Um, let's talk about Crocodile Hopewell here. The the way he is written, like you, Laura. Let's expand upon this a little bit because I definitely had this written down. The word "matey" gets tossed around a lot, let alone other British slang. It would be like me saying calling you "dude" every other word. You yeah, know. It's like- I'm going to hit you right in the gob with my meat magnets because that's what they call them in, in England. They and call them meat magnets? Look, I'm trying to I'm trying to riff here. Uh, and, and bloody hell, bloody, bloody, you're going to be right in the corker. I'm going to get you right in the oh, fanny. Watch it, Harry. I'm going to I'm going to knock you down so high your nose is splitting too like my mum's uh, uh, pork chops back home, you know, overseas. It's like, quick, open up the apples and pears. What is that? <laughs> the emergency stairs. <laughs> <laughs> Has anyone got a slice of shepherd's pie? Oh, shout out to our friends in the UK. Actually, thank you so much for listening. Um, Continue to support this, this podcast. We appreciate it. One of my previous appearances, actually, there's a, a designer who's really good. I forget his name, but he actually reached out to me on Twitter. Uh-huh. So we got some fans over in the UK. Well, we, we've yeah, Love we've you got guys. a great listener base. Um, maybe after this episode, maybe not anymore, but no, Look, we're making we're fun, fun, yes. we're making fun of Stephen his King characterization yes. of a British man. That's Stephen King. Not we're making fun I. of not and definitely not the fine folks over there in the United Kingdom. Or even Australia, because we definitely um, dropped some uh, Crocodile Dundee puns slash jokes in there. They're all good people. But they're terrific. Um, yeah, bad, bad dialogue for Nick Hopewell. Um, oh, just I, really laying it on thick who this guy is. I don't know. It, it got very annoying very quick. I took me out. And he's also, and we'll get into Laurel. You know what? Let's get into Laurel, oh, all right? Yeah, so, I got a lot of thoughts. Laurel Stevenson, this is, this is her backstory. This is so. Of all the things that got explained, this got the most explanation. By the I way, know. didn't it? Yes, it got exactly. the most explanation. So she's en route to meet Darren Crosby, first and last name, who she'd been corresponding with through. I guess back in the in the pre-internet era, there was this. There would be like videos you could send around. It sounds really like like snuff films or something like that, but <laughs> like basically like it would be like the OK Cupid for for VHS. It's you like would get like people, yeah, yeah. It, it was called Friends and Lovers in the magazines. I think they were also reaching out. Or Mad TV had the sketch lowered expectations. Lowered expectations. <laughs> I remember that was the first episode of Mad TV they introduced oh, that yeah. sketch. I think that came out around the same time of the Langoliers, right? I taped it ninety five. Yeah. I think. What a great time! Really great time. Real zeitgeisty. <laughs> um, yeah. So this is her character. She's. 
I guess kind of just a lonely heart that is has found somebody who seems like a real sweetheart that she's going to finally go meet. Um, the Langoliers and time itself have got a different idea because then she gets to know Mr. Nick Hopewell and sees he's a bit rough. He's mm. a bit forceful. He's a bit of a bad boy. He's not, he's not this loser, nice guy, Darren Crosby. And I'll tell you what, she falls in love pretty quick and hard and, and vice versa, but I add. This is one of the worst relationships I've ever read in a Stephen King short story, novella, or novel. What do you think? It's it's bad. I yeah. mean, and I just just to talk about Laurel herself. I mm. found that the way King describes her is one of the more insulting passages in the entire book. Um, so so I'm just going to read this really quickly. It's from Albert's perspective. Like uh, I don't know if that excuses it because it's like a yeah. dippy teen kind of way of looking at it, but it really doesn't in my book. He looked at her more closely and saw nothing really remarkable. A woman with Uh. a species of fading prettiness. A woman falling rapidly out of her 20s and toward middle age. And to Albert, 30 was definitely where middle age began. A woman who would soon become colorless and invisible. Um, Which is basically... But but then from Laurel's perspective, we learn that's exactly how she's feeling about herself. And she's like, I've got to go on one last adventure before I just... You know, my 20s are over. And it's, it's just like, what the flying fuck... And her attitude has even changed at the end because she still wants to go on one last adventure. Right. I just and her whole her her character is actually one of the few that doesn't exist just to do something to like ferry an object or to have a psychic prediction or whatever. But but so we actually get the most characterization out of her. Um, maybe only second or equal with Brian Engel. You know, where she she's less she's more of a character in in the classical sense, but the character that we get is insulting, cliched, misogynistic, mm-hmm. boring. And then she just sits there and the whole time she goes, oh, don't, why do you have to be so rough with him, Mr. Hopewell? You know, I just can't. It's like, ugh, yeah. she's just lame. Well, she says those things and then you get the inner monologue of, but uh, I was kind of attracted to him. I, I can change him. Yeah, oh. I can, yeah. yeah, I could change him. Well, she, she even <laughs> says the guy that she's supposed to meet on the date, he has something in his eyes where there might be a kind of a hidden rage. Well, King or, refers to poor Darren Crosby, the true victim of this book, as, um, where'd she go? Placid. Like, oh, poor bastard. He's, you know, he's on video VHSs and magazines. He's looking for love, too. I'm sure he's a nice yeah. fellow. He's just a normal guy. Yeah. Not I, fucking with any time. Not like, not yelling at people and telling them to stay out of it. And like, ooh, this guy seems pretty hot. But I will say, though, the Nick thing, going back to what I said earlier, the teenage love, I can kind of see. Mm-hmm. But these are older adults, and they're going through crisis. There's been murders. That's monsters. The, okay, let's you talk about you this. You don't okay. fall, like, when you have adrenaline going like that, it's not the time to fall in love. We are... Yeah, we maybe this is probably the best time to talk about this. Is so many things happen in this book in which they totally dismiss events that just happened. Like she has witnessed this poor blind girl get yeah. stabbed in the chest and is is dying, and she's still like starts to lust after Nick. Like you said, this doesn't make any sense. If they if these were like young teens who were still figuring things out, hormones are all over the place. As we learned, I mean, she's on her way to middle age. I mean, she's obviously no. I'm yeah, she's she's, she's about to die. Spinster, she's yeah. a real yeah, God. Don't even look at her. Um, but like, it just didn't make any sense. And, and just totally, I kept the, all the love scenes in the novella. I kept thinking about like Dinah two rows over, coughing up blood right. and dying, and they're like. We gotta go on this date if this, if we get back, right? Like it's a crazy writing, literally yeah. splattered in a child's it, it, blood. It's very much like a <laughs> '90s cliche, '80s and '90s. I find that there there's a forced love story, and it's okay, you know, if they're scared and they start holding hands when the plane is shaking. That's one thing, but 
to actually have a full-on love story. And I think the way it played out in the miniseries really shows how quick this happens. They kind of glance it, at each other. So and then, slavishly faithful, too. And then when he has to sacrifice yeah. himself, Ugh. you know, it, it's as if they've known each other for an eternity. You're like, you guys have just been talking You know for- what it's like? It's, it's like two things. It's like Weather American Summer... Where at the very end, <laughs> David I. Pierce and Janine Garofalo are like, oh, baby, it's been a dream of yours to get the, the Fields Medal or whatever it is. And I kept thinking about, when was the last time you two saw Airplane? Has it been a while? It's been a minute, but... Well, there's a scene that they make fun of the movie Airport where there's this nun who plays guitar. And she's taking this, this girl who's, I think, getting like a heart transplant or something like that. But an, air, an airplane... She starts playing the guitar. Everybody's playing along, and she she knocks out the the, the girl's like tube. IV, yeah. And so the girl like starts like having like you know a, a, like a like she starts suffocating, and they're still like playing along. Everybody's having a good time. <laughs> That's what this whole thing reminded me of. Like, oh, we're gonna fall in love, and we land in Boston, wherever we're gonna have that date. And this girl's you know stab wound, coughing to death, hallucinating. So stupid. It's just awful. Awful writing. Sorry, sorry, Uncle Stephen. Yeah, sorry, he's a trash yeah, We're a big Stephen um, King fan. Big Stephen, once again, listener episodes. We love Stephen King. All right, okay. This guy, um, I, I'll say this next character kind kind of grew on me, kind of grew on me. Robert Jenkins, who we learned right off the bat, is the author of more than forty mystery novels. Did you know that? Uh, what? He's a mystery writer. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you hear about this? Dan, did you hear about this? He's a mystery writer. Yeah, no, it's, it, that's what I'm saying. He's kind of the stand-in for Stephen King, who's probably had about 40 novels at this time. It, he reminded me of somebody, it was like somebody from Clue popped up. Totally. And showed up here. And they, I mean, they kind of excuse that a little bit by him saying like, oh, I fall, whenever I get stressed out, I sort of play one of my own characters or like a Poirot kind of figure. Uh, that's why I kind of right. bought in a little bit as it went on, but it was so heavy handed to was. begin with. And, and like, it's just kind of like he comes to deductions that I don't think it would, again, just like you don't need to be a secret agent to like say, let's tie up the crazy guy. I don't think you need to be this like hard boiled mystery writer to make what are pretty quick, you know, necessary deductions in this situation where like, it's just kind of like it, it, once you accept that you're in a sci-fi story, I don't think they, it was especially hard to figure out what was going on. You know, I mean, maybe that's just me. Maybe I have the bias of having seen the miniseries in my childhood, but it's kind of like, okay, got it. The sandwiches don't have taste. Let's like now fly through all of this. Like, I don't think we need this guy pontificating about time travel, you know, like Mm -hmm. just for fuck's sake, just get on with it. Uh, So eh, I have mixed feelings. What do you think, Dan? Um, He's probably one of the more in-depth characters. I didn't really care one way or the other for him, but I could say that about most of the characters in this book. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, just but, but he does he does the most to kind of advance the story, and he's sort of like the, I don't know. The, he does advance the story, like you said, even though there's, like, we talked yeah, about a lot, too much exposition yeah, going on here, yeah, too. Too much expo- too over-explanation yeah, going he, on. He seems right. to understand things, and because, of, I guess, that you know, it's such a short novella, um, he doesn't really get questioned. It's just sort of what he says becomes science facts, king Yeah, science. it's just like it has to be correct. Nothing he really says gets disproven, right? Yeah, <laughs> I think there just wasn't enough time, and they, they, he really not. was trying to rapidly move the story. All right. We'll, we'll rush through these next few but before we get to the, 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 the dude of the hour. Uh, the main course. The crew neck of the hour. That was not Justin Gerber. All right, this quartet, is, this is tough. This is, this is what we were talking about. I think, Laura, you were talking about earlier about we could chop off like half the cast. And this is, here we go. Bethany Sims, who we learn is a troubled teen and route to her aunts, but likely... On her way to a rehab facility. That's that's literally all we get from this character. That's it. Done. And she smokes cigarettes. And she and she smokes cigarettes. And she 
I guess, kind of falls in puppy love with Ace, stress love. I kind of had a crush on her, to be honest, um, especially in the miniseries. Well, well, in the miniseries, yeah. That's different, you know? Because yeah. she, she's cute. Yeah, well, she's very cute. You know, but, uh, the character. Yeah, there's not much going on the there. The character. Besides. It's tough. I don't know. It's like totally tubular. Like I, I don't. Oh she, yeah. She, oh. One of the things Dan you yeah. texted me was totally yeah. tubular. Yeah. When, when they land the plane safely, um, in the present time, she exclaims, "Totally tubular!" And I almost threw the book across the. <laughs> <way>. <laughs> I definitely. love King trying to write eighties kids. That's what I was gonna say. It feels like an adult man trying to write like a teen girl. Like and like she met, like references Olivia ha- Havilland or something like this, and you're like, "What teen girl? Like what? Like, this is really an old man writing a teen yeah. girl." Yeah, and what's funny too is that there was an arcade game called believe tubular mm. where you raced an inner tube across like rapids so oh whenever i hear tubular i just have flashbacks to playing that game and well you're, you're right though king can't really write for like a young woman he, he's just like how do the kids talk well oh, i think totally he, tubular if you think about like the kids in it are so good because he grew up in that era you know so right. now he's like a 40 year old trying to figure out what did, what did the 12 13 18 year olds yeah. look like you know and like ace oh. is wearing like a hard rock cafe shirt love yeah it. it's, it's just, so I love lame it. it would be like right now if i tried to write and it would be like he's wearing a youtube shirt and keeps saying things are on fleek like yeah. <laughs> a PewDiePie paul lagging paul and he's talking about like the wings sitcom from the 90s like of course this kid knows what wings is <laughs> yeah. um okay here's another here's another person don gaffney who is ultimately stabbed in the neck he, so he's there basically to be killed by toomey yeah, I, I said I think I liked him because he didn't talk, um, and he had a calming presence like a golden retriever. But that's like, all I had to say. Non-entity. Yeah. What, what, was there to tell, what was there to say about this person? He gets taken out with a letter opener. So. He does. Special um, delivery. Here's a character who's kind of the comic relief. Um, Rudy Warwick, who's always hungry. So hungry man. Literally his only characteristic. He does nothing else except neglect to watch Yep. For Toomey at one point. So the only other note is that he, he Toomey escapes because he because of Warwick thinks he's just sleeping. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you're right. That could have been any character could have also been hungry for food and they could have just written this character. I mean, we yeah, all, like, like, they, they, they were great. all hungry. Yeah, and then, you know, they never go to the bathroom in this. I want to know ah. what happens when you try to pee in the, in the past world. Well, we'll look forward to the complete and uncut edition of the Langoliers <laughs> and the 25th anniversary. At least <laughs> the, the 40th anniversary in a couple of years. It won't smell at least. That's a good oh, point. True, it's Jason like Sudeikis eat your heart out. <laughs> um, and the last character, I'm not kidding. I don't even have his name. What was it again, Laura? The the person who just sleeps the whole time doesn't even. Wake. I think it's just like drunk guy. I don't even know that we. Do we even give him a name? Bearded drunk man. Yeah, he, nothing. So he's they, he's you know an alcoholic and he's just out and then he's getting like DTs or whatever. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's starting to shake and then he goes back to sleep and they pretty much just leave him on the plane. He's it's there so, just for like a one line joke, like because yeah. there was like one point where they use it as comic relief where oh, he gets yeah. up and he's like, "What happened?" And they're like, oh, "Don't like, worry about it." Yeah. And the absolute lack of concern for this character also. There's like, oh, we'll leave him on the plane. We're yeah. fine. What, what, what? <laughs> anyway, I thought just another totally superfluous character. All right. Now let's talk about who who I think is actually uh, easily, <laughs> easily the best character of this novella. Easily. Without question. And actually, I think it's, it's quite a good character. Craig Krunek Toomey. Um, I had him as Craig the Ripper Toomey. Oh, ooh. Dan, you want to give us a little more of that uh, that paper tear? Oh, you got to get him nice and nice thin. and thin, nice, nice and, thin. and thin. This guy, paranoid, entitled corporate guy um, who I'm not great with money. So I'm trying to figure out the whole bonds thing. Right. He he buys bad bonds almost deliberately. Right. 
Yeah. So bonds are crazy. Essentially, you can there's like a construction project or infrastructure. You gather a bunch of money from people who are willing to invest, and then over 30 years or whatever, you give them interest on that money. It's kind of like a mortgage, but governments use them, corporations use them. So he's bought a bunch of junk bonds, which are bonds that are unlikely to pay back. Mm -hmm. So usually you can get them for pennies on the dollar. So if they do pay back, you don't have to get the full amount to recoup your investment. Um, but he spends $43 million buying these bonds that are basically worthless. So yeah. his company's about to lose $43 million, mm. which at least you can write off on your taxes. But uh, Hey, they didn't think about that back yeah. in 1990. Well, it's funny, too, thinking of the value of $43 million to a corporation that's like multinational back then. I was thinking about that, yeah, 30 yeah. years ago. That's a lot of money. Yeah, they don't, well, I mean, $43 million is still a lot of money, but this is even more intense now. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a lot for a single employee to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, but usually you insure those also, so... Yeah. Well, maybe when King was doing his scientific research, he should have been doing some more financial research to figure <laughs> it out. Yeah. Maybe they could have written some of this off. It's like Seinfeld. You don't know what a write-off is. Um, <laughs> anyway, so but in addition to being a bad businessman, he is also uh, literally crazy. And as, as Flieger pointed out, he tears um, paper to kind of ease his, ease his mind to calm down a lot. Which kind of makes sense because it's, yeah, it it's sort of meditative. Yeah. And if you're mm-hmm. like that high-strung personality, sometimes focusing on a very simple task his, will kind of focus your uh, anxieties. It is. And it's, it's the most simple task you can do. I mean, it's the most childlike thing you can do. Maybe not the most childlike thing you can do. Suck, sucking your thumb is yeah, the most that's, childlike. That's the other thing. Yeah. He had a tough upbringing, too, which is why he's so nuts. His um, dad was really hard on him. You know, if he got A's and B's, it wasn't good enough. And he would always threaten him. He would say, if you are too stagnant, if you're not working hard, if you're wasting time, which we talked about earlier, the Langoliers will, will catch up to you and they will eat you. Hence the name of... of yeah, I was wondering where that came from. Like, if it's from lollygag. I have no idea where Langoliers mm. comes from, actually. I don't know if that was a King invention or... I'm sure it has to come from something. Yeah, I tried to find definitions online and they're all attributed to the King universe. Yeah. So I don't think it's a word that... Because even, even the Tommyknockers came from an old uh, UK... Uh, nursery rhyme, I think it was. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. But, but it's funny how everyone just assumes that word and names yeah. the time eaters, the langoliers. You know, it's it's stated as if it's fact that they are the langoliers. species well, langoliers. Diana really adapts it because she knows what's happening in Toomey's mind, too. Um, yeah, this character, I was all in on this character, though. I mean, we get a lot. Of, King does such a good job talking about these disturbing people's backstories. Like, not only was the father overbearing and I think he kills himself, right? Didn't he end up like dead in his office? No, or I think like he had a heart attack. Oh, he had a heart but attack. He, but he like was laying down on the job. Like that was kind of That's like, what it was. Mm-hmm. But but that mother, the mother, story of his mother, like on his birthday, yeah. like putting lit matches in between his toes mm-hmm. and that, yeah, that, that was, was kind of weird. Really disturbing and stuff And she would sing him. to him kind of drunk and yeah, make up craggy waggy. Never knew what to expect with her. Yeah. No, he, he, I think he does do a good job of characters that are kind of sympathetic Yes. Or at least you can empathize with how they've become these villains. Mm-hmm. Um, I just found, though, for him, it kind of went zero to 100 really quickly. Where, yeah. you know, people have disappeared and he's just like, but I got to get to Boston. You're like, I, think right, he's, I think he is so nuts at that point. I think even getting on the plane, he knows what he's getting into. Yeah, he was And so this to... just triggered him. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I just, you know, no, like, I, if I, I don't it. get there. And it's like, look, man, this is clearly some kind of phenomenon. Like hundreds of people have disappeared. Yeah, his, yeah. You, you get a doctor's note for this meeting, my friend. <laughs> his character is over the top, like for sure. No like, I mean, it's zany and like it's a bit much. But I think as far as the characters in this book, he's the most interesting, the most sympathetic, weirdly, um, because we, you know, get to actually learn about him. Um, we spend a lot of time with him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and he's he is the most interesting perspective to be with. You know, like it's like things are, oh, this is what I was looking for in this kind of book. Like freaky, 
weird stuff is happening, you know, and we get that the most with him and a little bit with Dinah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and, and I think the the paper ripping thing is iconic just to, I think it's the thing that everyone remembers from the miniseries. So, uh, you know, good tick, good choices were made generally with Toomey. Yeah, and he's the physical threat. Basically, because everything, yeah. cause if you don't have him here, imagine if he wasn't there and it was just them so walking boring. around, like eating sandwiches and lighting matches and, and fueling up planes and seeing if soda tastes good on the plane. Can you imagine that story without Toomey? This would be the worst of, of all time, right? This would be the worst of his, yeah. all his stories. So I think he's actually compelling throughout and I'm, and I'm with that character and you definitely miss that character when he's gone because that's, there's a lot left in novella at that point too. Uh, easily the best character, and I think actually a good character that's actually found in this book that kind of saves this novella from being the worst of the worst. And he actually a, worst he attempts three murders and succeeds in two of them. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So he shoots the gun at Ace, but the bullet doesn't penetrate And him. he threatens Bethany. Who knows what he would have done? He's holding it to her. Yeah. Um, yeah, like ends a- up stabbing... Uh, what's his face? Exactly. The letter opener. You said it best. Don what's his face? Yeah. Don Gaffney. I don't, don't, Don Gaffney. Why do I remember the name? No idea. And Don then, Gaffney. And then successfully breaks off a blade in Dinah. So he body count of two. Mm-hmm. He would be a spree killer if like if he had just like, he might have actually gone to Boston and had this happen and like I could see him like shooting up the whole you know board meeting or something. He has that mentality of like one day you're fine and everything's tight tightly laced and then the next day you just shoot a bunch of people. Yeah, I feel like he was on his way to a suicide or something after that meeting. Anyway, maybe he was just so fed up with life he wanted to get out of it. But mm-hmm. we have to talk about the Langoliers themselves, right? I've got some Do descriptions we? here. <laughs> we are contractually obligated to talk about the, <laughs> the Langoliers. Uh, so here's some descriptions. Uh, they can only be heard once the group lands at the airport. Laurel, de- I like these descriptions, I guess. Laurel describes her sound as animals at feeding time. That's what it sounds like. The sound of feeding animals sent through an amplifier and blown up to the grotesque proportions. Basically like bad ASMR. There's there's a good <laughs> description where it's, they sound like termites chewing up a balsa wood glider. Mm. Which is kind of a Specific. Weird, yeah, yeah. I was like, <laughs> yeah. why? first of all, why does it need to be a glider? It could just be on the, you know, yeah, on the ground. And, well, their physical presence is described as, as like a dark tomato red. Uh, balls which rippled and contracted and then expanded again. Insert your jokes here. <laughs> uh, what? F- Ouch, my balls. Ouch. Oh, my balls are expanding <laughs> and eating time. <laughs> <laughs> Must be Sunday. Uh, faces lurked below the surfaces of the racing balls. Monstrous alien faces. They shimmered and twitched and wavered like faces made of glowing swamp gas. Mm. The eyes were only rudimentary indentations. But the mouths were huge, semicircular caves lined with gnashing, blurring teeth. They ate as they came, rolling up narrow strips of the world. Uh, narrow strips? Like oh, uh, Toomey tears uh, narrow strips? Yeah. What's too bad about this description, which is quite good, is I had seen the miniseries already. So all I could Same. think about was the miniseries. Yeah, they look you know? like uh, the monsters' critters meets the Tremors monster. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a really vivid description of these things. I, I like it, but I, I'm, I'm screwed because I've been living well over half of my life knowing what they look like in that miniseries, and I cannot see them any other way. So yeah, not to bleed too much into that, but can't unring that bell. Any comments on the Langulars? I think I think they're pretty horrifying. You can't stop them. Obviously, you can only try. You can you can't really. I guess they proved you can outrace time if you've got an aurora. Aurora Borealis. Very good. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Scientifically proven, you can outrun the Langoliers if you can find that little uh, moment in time and the cloud in the sky. I, I have mixed feelings because I, I do think it's a good description, but in some ways I, I just think it would be better if we never saw them. 
Um, uh. And I don't know if, again, that's the miniseries uh, working its way into a bias because, dear God, we should never see them. Um, but, you know, it's like, what are you supposed to, the threat of them and the sound and that, you know, they, they seeing the power lines falling is so much scarier than when they actually appear. I agree 100%. But I think if you look at a lot of like the, the quote unquote, like the horror hounds, we need to see these things kill a person. Hence, to me getting out yeah, there that, and to me being the whole section. Well, that, that was strange. weird to me because I try to think of, okay, so the Langler's job is to eat up the matter that's left in time. Yeah. They pretty much eat up time. But what's weird is there's like in the miniseries, you see the telephone poles or electric lines going down, but they're not knocking the trees down necessarily. They're kind of like picking and choosing what they yeah. eat. And then when they see Toomey, they charge after him. And I'm like, wait, is there motive that they target I think because they people see, first? Yeah, I think because something they've never seen too, mm-hmm. right? They, they kind of allude to that and they think they enjoy him a little bit more because they don't get a lot of life. I think they actually say I that. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. It's like, yeah. I mean, this is all... King science logic in his creation, you know, you have to, I think you have to kind of just roll with it. Like they roll on that tarmac. And yeah, it up. but that's, it's one of those things where I would, you know, I love the backstory on monsters mm-hmm. and I would have liked to see how they were created. You know, if you could have tied this to like the Crimson King or something, you know, they're kind of a dark tomato red, you know? Yeah. But, but, but it's like, if you think of like the it monster and how he sort of exists in this like galactic temporal space mm-hmm. when you see his true form it would have been cool to have like oh yeah these were you know a similar species or cousins to the it creature well can you think about it? i don't think these the langlers have ever been referenced again in any stories after this right Did, can you think of anything off the top of your head either of you i, I can't no. think of anything no i think he kind of left these behind yeah. in the time rip all right well this has been a lot of fun talking about the heroes and villains of this piece but you know, we've, we've been pretty positive so far, so let's go. <laughs> let's, <laughs> yeah. You know, let's take this next section to get a little more negative in a section we call misery. She she died. She just slipped away. Slipped away? Slipped away? She didn't just slip away. You did it. 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 You murdered my misery. Penny. Okay, so we've we've done a pretty good job of of tearing down a lot of this novella, but I want to get into some more specific moments of things that really rubbed us the wrong way or bothered us. So I'll leave this off. This is Jenkins' first line of the novella. Tell me what you think about this line. He's a mystery writer, right? We know this. And he says, now I find myself in a mystery a good deal more extravagant than any I would have ever declared. What? Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. I got to repeat that. <laughs> Now I find myself in a mystery a good deal more extravagant than any I would have ever dared to write. I mean, how what the fuck? awful is that? Like, that's really bad writing, right? That's really bad. That's the kind of thing, like, you, somebody would say that, and then you'd, you'd just scream nerd and pants them. Yeah, you'd punch <laughs> exactly. him in the face. Like, why don't you go take a nap with the, with what's his name back there? No, it sounds like something uh, Martin would say, yes. Martin Prince on The Simpsons. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. oh what a wondrous mystery. Yeah. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> Uh, My just water the, dish so is empty. It is, it is a testament to that character that I. That this is easily the worst of him right here, I think. I, I kind of He's more bearable. It's like the most yeah. faint praise I can give later on. Any other specific instances either of you can, can, can mention here? I have a few quotes. Oh, please. They're, they're all short but and sort of about things that I already talked about, but um, more descriptions of Laurel, uh, and this was her own point of view. Although she was no model, she was cleanly built <laughs> and pleasant enough to look at. Oh, she was pleasant enough. That's like, nice. thank you for giving us that description of a woman. Uh, you, you know, don't refer to any men in this fashion in any of the character descriptions, but thanks for that. Um, I like how even though she wasn't a model, she she was fine. She, she'll do. You know, pleasant that's, enough to look at. Therefore, tough. she qualifies as a human. 
Uh, okay. She's not Langelier. Yeah, she's, she ain't no Langelier. She ain't no model, but she ain't no Langelier. You know what I mean? Uh, so, and then just how, two little things of how much King needs to let us know that Nick Hopewell is British. Um, I love it. Maybe you'd better... Okay, so this is a quote from page 101 of my edition. Maybe you'd better go first. Uh, oh, sorry, sorry, I should be doing this in a British accent. Please, Flew. Your best, <laughs> your best, worst British accent. <clears throat> Maybe you'd better go first. In, my, in case... Oh, <laughs> this is not going well for me. In case my loudmouth friends decides to cut up rough about the unscheduled stop again. Schedule. But then he pronounced unscheduled as unscheduled. Oh, they actually say yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That's that, right. that's, oh, it, it was just like, Jesus fucking Christ. Like, we know. Um, and then here's another good one. You're a bloody-minded little bugger who has mistaken his airline boarding pass for credentials proclaiming him to be the Grand High Pooba of creation. Oh, so he's an uh, imperialist, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's I just, of India. Grand I just couldn't. It was like, good God, we uh, know he's British. All right. Yeah. All. Dan, do you have anything? Especially, well, just to follow up on that, like, mm. considering how short the timeline is and how they really are racing against the clock, they're very verbose. Yeah, yes. no, there's a lot of like a soliloquies joke. and unnecessary turns of phrase. Ugh. Yeah, like this is not the time or the place. Yeah, and the one uh, one line that I thought was funny was um, when Ace is when Bethany is leaning against Ace. Ace thinks to himself, "There was a great deal of girl pressed against him." Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I love when I'm with women, and they love me describing them as a great deal of girl. Yeah. There's a lot of you here. Yeah, yeah What's that's going on. That's what I like. Uh, well, there you go. Notes, notes out there, everybody. W- women love it. Women love to hear that. Uh, that's a lie. That's there's we should have like an asterisk at the end. <laughs> yeah. These were jokes at the at the one and a half hour mark. Of I the couldn't podcast. even let it hang as a as a, um, as a joke. <laughs> Here's all right. I talked about this with uh, the Nick and, and Laurel quote unquote connection. So when Nick is trying to calm down Dinah after she's been stabbed by saying, "Young Doctor Hopewell is ever so gentle with the ladies, especially the ones who are young and pretty," Laurel felt a sudden and absolutely absurd desire to reach out and touch Nick's hair. There <laughs> 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 right, we go. Uh, then there's another page about how dumb she is for having feelings for him. Um, when he shouts near the end, she feels, quote unquote, her skin prickle. Gross. Uh, yeah, again, this girl's this girl she's been babysitting has been stabbed by a maniac and she's contemplating going out to dinner with Nick if they get back. It's just awful. Just right, twirling awful. her twirling her hair on one blood soaked finger. You know? Ugh, with the blood of a child, literally a blood of a child on you. I got a couple more things. I think it's kind of a uh, meet cute, you know. It's, it's adorable. You guys? It's adorable. Oh, uh, we met over a dying blind girl in another dimension, mm-hmm. in an unknown dimension, while escaping Langoliers or eating time. Girls love an accent. What can I hey. say? <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot of girl there. Um, again, that was a reference to the <laughs> Great Deal, Albert Ace Cosner's mind. I want to make the point perfectly clear. I got a couple more things. Oh God, the passed out guy. Yeah, one of his moments here. I got a line. Uh-huh. Oh, so shitty. There's a bunch of these that end chapters, you know? Okay. They take off again at the end of the book. Are we almost in Boston yet? I hope so, because I want to go back to bed. I've got one bastard of a headache. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> just like, it's like, it, it's like a sitcom line. Like, it I know when he looks at the camera and winks, you know, like, I got one hell of a headache. Like, I can't. On that, too, I got to say. You got one, right? Don't you oh, have one? Oh, man. So when they land safely in the airport, um, I think it's the mystery writer who they basically say, Next time I'm taking a slow train if I'm doing yes, a trip, it and it's such a like. Next time you drive, you know it's, <laughs> exactly. It's so bad. It's yeah. once again it's wet American it's summer. Wet American again. summer. And, right, there's and, another one just like this. And then also uh, Nick uh, when he's yeah. in the cockpit, they're like, "What are you going to do if we survive this?" And he's like, 
might take some flying lessons. And there's actually there's like a beat it says here too, which is funny too because he actually does pilot the plane for a little bit. So it's like, wait, they're admitting he doesn't have any idea how to fly a plane, but then they're like, all right, you're in charge while pilot passes out. Just a lot of lame comic moments in this and the story of, of absolute peril of trying to get out of there before they're eaten alive by some. Like I'm a person presence. who likes to make a joke. But I can't imagine I would be so. Uh, I mean, I like, like to jovial. break, yeah, yeah you break the tension. tension, you know. But this is it's cheesy. It's all yeah. I'm saying. It's cheesy. It's it's bad. <laughs> okay, well, we've been quite negative. I there's maybe some positive things we can say in our next section called word processor of the god. And we're gonna make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here, and you hear me typing. Whether you don't hear me typing, what the, the fuck you hear me doing in here when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. Now, do you think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine. Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? Any specific positive notes either of you would like to make before I've got my uh, one positive note? I have two very short quotes mm. oh. of lines that I liked because I made myself take note of them while I was reading and realizing like how shooting much stars. I, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. It, it, so just this one line on page 46 of my edition, a terrible idea began to surface in his mind coming up like a bloated corpse rising to the top of a river. Just a nice little good description. Yeah. Just a good little, Creepy. you know, um, and then angle in the plane on the way back when they're trying to find the time rip as they, as they leave the Langoliers behind. <clears throat> Then darkness came like an act of mercy, and for a little while, he could concentrate on the stars. He clung to them with the fierceness of panic, the only real things left in that horrible world. Orion the hunter, Pegasus, the great shimmering horse of midnight, Cassiopeia in her starry chair. It's hmm. nice. It just has a nice rhythm to it, and it's like a pretty, it's kind of pretty, and you can sort of relate to it at that moment, um, but... There's not a lot of, there's not a lot of uh, nice rhythm throughout the rest of this, so yeah. it's a nice little... R- 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 yeah, reprieve. Respite. Respite. Or, a respite? Well, yeah. A rib- yeah, no, reprieve would also work. You're right. You're, both, you're both right. You're I think right. we're both right. Yeah. High five. Boop, boop. Boom. Dan, any, any nice moments of prose um, in the Langoliers? Not so much prose, but just sort of the, I mentioned earlier, there's like the insect motif. Mm-hmm. So we talked about the the uh, termites eating the balsa wood plane as the noise. And I think this sort of ties back to the idea that the Langoliers have a hive mind and they're sort of based on instinct. Mm-hmm. So there's also a description of carpenter ants. Mm. Um, there's a description when Craig gets hit by the toaster that he feels like there's bees in his brain buzzing mm, around. Yeah, I like that. So I try to, you know, desperately trying to yeah. stick it to something. Craig <laughs> like, um, in the middle of the night, like tearing out pages, yeah. like, where are you? Where are you? But there's three or four insect references. And mm. I think I can only imagine King is trying to make the point that the Langoliers sort of operate like a hive of insects, just kind of mindlessly eating. and A hive mind like uh, the Tommyknockers. Well, my favorite, uh, that's a joke, I hate Tommyknockers, as our listeners know. I've got one thing here. It's actually basically just um, a use of foreshadow that I think works really well, especially if you're not familiar with the miniseries and you're reading this for the first time. Um, Brian has a conversation with Melanie Trevor, who probably has more agency than just about any other, most of the characters throughout the rest of this book. She's another flight attendant. And um, it, their conversation ends with this. He closes his eyes and promptly fell asleep. He never saw Melanie Trevor again. Good little, little bump there, I think. Yeah. Because you don't know what's going to happen. You know what the story's about. Like, wh- how? How does he not yeah. see her again, you know? Mm-hmm. King's definitely good at ending chapters yes. and making it a page turner because there's that little bit of foreshadowing. That you're like, wait a minute, you know? So that works well. That works well. But honestly, in terms of... He's got gorgeous prose in his other books. We've talked yeah. about them. I thought, that's why we got a section, for God's sakes. But... 
Not a lot of gorgeous pros in the old Langoliers. It was yeah. a race against I, time, apparently. I've got some good ones for pound cake. I'm saving. Oh, so. oh I'm looking forward to this. So uh, we're going to go into our next section. Uh, we're going to talk about the more scarier or more intense moments of this novella. The more the, the, scarier. The, the more. Oh, I'm. Oh, what a word. All my English teachers hate me right now. <laughs> the more scariester. Hey, the r- more scarier. Don't worry. You speak good. Uh, me speak good. Writing's different than talking. Yeah. You know what? It's like uh, Harrison Ford once said to George Lucas, you can write this shit, but you can't say it. I don't know if that works here, but we're going to move on to our next section called The Cemetery. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. A couple things we've mentioned already. I'll just leave this off. I think the whole backstory of Toomey is really effective, especially with that strange thing of his mother placing lit matches between his toes. That's disturbing. We'll go around a quick circle here. What do you got? What do you got, Laura? What do you got? I mean, yeah, I think all the stuff with Toomey probably is, is the only thing that's actually effective. I, and, and to me, the, the premise is scary. I couldn't really point to one moment um, that I actually found really frightening as far as the action that takes place on the plane that in the here and now it's just the premise is claustrophobic. Like mm-hmm. I don't really want to get on a plane anytime soon. And yeah. I, you know, I've never liked planes. So the claustrophobia is effective and that sense of being lost or isolated is effective, but it wasn't really any one particular moment that grabbed me or I was like, again, and I don't know if that comes down to the writing being kind of plain. Yeah. Um, it was just, there was just nothing that really like hooked me at any one moment or another. Yeah. yeah. To me, was certainly the scariest part of this book. Yeah. Um, his childhood. One thing that's kind of funny in my own childhood, my mom did not light matches between my toes, but they potty trained me by throwing matches in the toilet and having me extinguish them. Really? Yeah. And that's why I'm a pyromaniac now. But, <laughs> um, pretty much. We're all in danger. Yeah, but it, it's just, it was funny just thinking of this little kid and you're like, why? I mean, not funny, but kind of in a sick way, you're like, what would the point of her giving him like a hot foot even be proving other than just pure sadism? I think it's sadism. I think she's, yeah, she's I think. like cracked. Yeah. I think, I think that I mean, if, if things were tough on him, imagine how tough, in terms of his relationship with his father, imagine what it was like to be married to that person. Yeah, and I think there's like a power structure where the dad presumably was mean to the mom, so then shit rolls downhill. She's and he's gone, so now she's mean, yeah, I agree. Um, but yeah, the, the line glares weren't that frightening. I didn't, the idea of time eating you is just not that scary of a concept, so. That wasn't that, fr- I will say that, um, not the line themselves, but I did like, that this description here where Brian realized that they were unzipping more than the world. They were opening all the depths of forever. But that was kind of creepy. That idea, once again, of the infinity, yet nothingness. uh, Anyway, it creeps me out. I also like the absolute um, cruelty that King offers to me as he's about to die is to me actually realizes his father was lying. But it's it's at the last moment where it says his last thought was, how can their little legs be fast? They have no legs. And then he dies. Like I he realizes like, that they weren't really, yeah. I like the way that he wrote that with it just cutting off. I mean, it's a little on the nose, but it's ah, good. It's <laughs> cut off his legs, cut off his, his strength of thought. But I thought that was kind of a brutal finish for Toomey. Yeah, I thought Toomey also getting brained with the toaster mace, the makeshift. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think his teeth get knocked out. And yes. that to me is always when someone have cracked teeth, that's and like you said, yeah. like the aftermath of the buzzing in his head, too. Yeah. With something, not, not all the wires. The, the wires weren't already connected, but that's kind of screwed up. I like... Brian's concerns when they're flying back where he says, what will happen to us if we can't find the rip again? What will happen if we run out of fool? 
Don't try to tell me we'll crash because I simply don't believe it. You can't crash into nothing. I think we'll simply fall and fall and fall for how long and how far. How far can you fall into nothing? Like that idea of just the, once again, the infinity and yeah. not having an end and just. That is creepy. That's kind of creepy. Fair. Mm-hmm. Folks, I have bad news. That's all I've got. I, I would say one more thing, too. Oh, the, no, sorry. Here we go. The, if the fuel will work. So they have to fill the plane up, and mm-hmm. they need 50,000 pounds of it. Yeah. I think they only get like 46. They're cutting it close. They get the minimum. Yeah. But one thing that kind of upset me with that was there were people just sitting on the plane. They could have been taking the luggage and throwing it out to lighten the load. That's oh, a yeah. good point. Everyone checks a bag. There's a, you know, up to 50 pounds for carry-on. There's bags in the bottom of the plane. You know, a lot they, of they could have emptied tonnage and yeah. gone you know, a lot further. And, you know, I was like, oh, did the bags disappear? But no, because when they fly later, they the overhead out. bins open. Mm-hmm. So it was like, yeah. there were people just sitting there. I'm like, you could have start ripping seats out. You know, we can go a lot further, but that's just. That's just, yeah, getting the narrative along, I Sorry, guess. Sorry, I guess that doesn't belong. No, 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 no. It's a, it scared me how. It scared me how badly it was written. Yeah. They were, yeah. <laughs> yeah if you're going to be in a survival situation. I'm your man. I'm your Nick. All right. Well, 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 Nick, uh, let's move on to our next section here. One of our favorites. It's a section where we talk about kind of the, the poorly written uh, sexual situations and or farts, which we get occasionally. A section we call Pound Cake. After all you've been taught, everyone in bad mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray. Ask to be forgiven. He's a nice boy, mama. You like him. You really like him, mama. Can I lead this off here? Albert is investigating items left behind on the plane. Here's the quote. He picked up a flesh-colored plastic cylinder and examined it for almost 30 seconds before deciding it was really a dildo and putting it down again in a hurry. Gotta have a Albert, dildo. Albert, I can imagine Albert, this character, kind of like, oh, whoa, uh, what is this supposed to do? <laughs> Comic relief. Oh, man. Can I, um, can I do one? Please, please, please. Um, so this is Bethany when she gets saved by Albert. She looked at him with eyes, which suggested... Uh, she looked at him with... <laughs> let me take that again. Check. She looked at him with eyes, which suggested she believed Albert Krasner must shit diamonds from a platinum asshole. So I also had that. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to We've unpack all been there. there. So <laughs> she's starting uh, to have a crush on this guy by fantasizing him shitting diamonds from a platinum asshole. You know, some people are kinky. I don't know. You know, this is the way some people are. Yeah, don't kink shame. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's also so clumsy, which... And, and she said platinum, for God's sake. She didn't <laughs> say anything, you know? Yeah. It was platinum. But the... Like, which suggested she believed. It's just a bad, poorly written sentence. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, I have a completely unnecessary simile with Craig. Um, I think this is right before he gets his teeth knocked out. So Craig looked nervously at the dead escalator. They would be hunting him soon, the Englishman undoubtedly leading the pack. And here he stood in the middle of the floor, exposed as a stripper who has just tossed panties and G-string into the audience. I have a lot of questions about this. Yeah, let's break that down. I mean, I don't know. Panties and G-string? So she's wearing two pairs of underwear? Maybe it's like a double T. It's like, oh, I've got the panties off and I still have a G-string on. Yeah, it's like a strip, think strip club. I mean, they have so many layers of clothing at that point. <laughs> they have like three sweaters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's like slowly. It's they really want to. They want to make it last. You know. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, and also, just why? Why was that written at that moment? Uh, there's a lot of why. <laughs> why is this happening at this moment in the Langoliers? Um, here's a great moment. Uh, it's the last one I've got, at least for me. When they're filling up the planes with the fuel, Brian says, uh, <laughs> "Yeah, I know this." Do me a favor, all right? What's that? Don't fart. 
because <laughs> he's standing like under him or something. And it's just, oh yeah, it's just so. It came out a. It just feels very again like. I get that you make jokes to break tension in, in stressful moments, but it just feels like uh, uh, uncharacteristic and weird. There's so many weird beats in this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Any, anything else for Pound Cake? That's all I've got. It's a I, novella. I had the platinum asshole line too, and that was it. That's yeah, a good one. I had the sex toy as well. There's just a, and uh, the whole anything between Laurel and Nick is also yes. lame, bad love writing. Well, in my opinion. yeah, so. and I, I guess on that point. So he tells her, you know, go find my father, basically, and tell him that I died a good man and I made up like, for it. Where's and, this coming from? You know, and tell him if he doesn't believe you, say daisies. And oh, yeah. Well, I alluded to the daisies at the opening of this at, episode. And at the end, and I think more so in the miniseries, but she's smiling to herself when they land. And they're like, what are you smiling about? And she's like, daisies. Oh. And they're all like, what? Jesus. And that's, that's a trope that I hate in film where a character could easily give context but just chooses not to, and they're like, yeah. okay, Daisy, whatever, <laughs> you, say, whatever yeah. you say. She'd be like, All right. no, he told me to tell his dad. Like That's very easily resolved. <laughs> All right, let's get the hell out. I'm full. I can't eat any more pound cake. I'm, I'm done. We got to move on to our next section called King's Dominion. There's another world out there. I know there is. Okay, so for this section, we're going to talk about, you know, passages, dialogue, characters that either directly or indirectly relate to other Stephen King properties. I've got a few things here. Some of them are more, will just annoy the two of you because they're not really King's Dominion, but I found some quality in them. But do you have anything that, you, that stuck out? Laura, I think you said nothing really stuck out to you upon the read, right? I, yeah, I mean, besides it being in Maine, um, yeah. I mean, I have, uh, and, and like, I guess, you know, Dinah having the shine is mm-hmm. also worthwhile. Um, I have that too. I have more things for the miniseries specifically. I think. I think there, there's one line in the miniseries that I don't. I think was added. And yeah, we'll, we'll the, save that for the yeah. miniseries section too. So definitely. I'm going to say, Dan, take it away. The big tease for for now. Um, so there's. A, I'll hold off on the Dark Tower ones, but yeah. Uh, first, I'd like to start. At one point, they talk about going back in time, and they say, you can't go back in time and put a stop to the JFK assassination. Yeah. Oh, no, that was the one I thought wasn't in the book. That's I, could, first, I, I, I couldn't find it when I was looking for it again because it, I noticed it in the miniseries and that that's a reference to another King book. But. Yeah, so it's, yeah. it's funny that he kind of set the stage for, what was it? 112263. Yeah, yeah, good. But they also, at one point, so I wondered, so he says, you can't do that, and then years later, Stephen King's like, that's a good idea to follow up on. But in the book, they also mention you can't go back to the pyramids or to the dinosaurs. So I wonder if King has any other ideas ah. that could maybe be time travel with pyramids or dinosaurs. Eleven twenty two BC. Dino DNA. <laughs> Dino DNA. I gotta go back in time and kill a baby dinosaur. It's because it looked like Hitler. I don't. I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> I'm picturing like a brontosaurus with a little mustache. Mm-hmm. It's kind of um, cute. That's cute. That's a baby brontosaurus. <laughs> um, and then other connections. So they mentioned Logan Airport in Boston, which mm-hmm. I believe it Doctor Sleep takes place in Boston. Yeah, it does. It does. When he's yeah. The um, obviously with Maine. That's all. That's all. Yeah. Um, In terms of Dark Tower, though, there were a few. First of all, with Ace fantasizing about being a gunslinger, the actual word gunslinger is used in his fantasy. So that's a little Mm -hmm. nod, you know. Oh, and the nickname Ace is also Ace Merrill from The Body. Stand by me. Yeah. Mm. Good point. The at one point they mentioned the world feels over, which is a theme in the Dark Tower that time has moved on. Mm -hmm. You know, things are kind of starting to deteriorate. There's thinnies appearing. Yeah. There's also a part two when they land and they sort of catch up to the present. They say the world feels as fresh as a rose on the verge of opening. Yes. And that's the rose is a recurring theme in the Dark Tower, too, mm-hmm. that universes are sort of contained within roses. That's a good one. 
then I think that may do it. Well, I've got a couple here. Well, if you if you want to find if you find anything else, Dan. Yeah. The in-flight movie is when Harry met Sally, directed by Rob Reiner, who directed Stand by Me. <laughs> Fun, right? He also ended up doing Misery as well and some other stuff. Jenkins and Albert are discussing hypotheticals as to what happened to the other passengers when Jenkins says, let us say that some shadowy government organization like the shop has decided to carry out an experiment. The shop is from Firestarter and also oh. Tommy Knocker. So like this shady government organization that, that kind of deals with the, uh, the unknown, the paranormal and stuff. So, and that was a deliberate reference to King work. Um, here's a good one, though. When Toomey goes down the airplane slide, this is the passage. Brian was crazily reminded of that old Hertz ad on TV, the one where O.J. Simpson went flying through airports in a suit and a tie. Uh, what King did not know in 1990 was that both Toomey and O.J. would end up having much more in common because they would both go on to kill two human beings. Very good. Any comments on that? <laughs> no, I, but I, I love that commercial. Um, yeah, I've watched that on YouTube a bunch yeah, of yeah, times. He's, it's, he's yeah. running and he's kind of hurtling. And he's it's jumping sort of, off the... Yeah. You've seen his mainstreaming him. And also, he, he rented Hertz, or he was flown after murdering his wife and... In the plane. Boyfriend, yeah. Yeah, yeah you're right. So, so it's all ties together here. It was all... Maybe uh, King is the shine. Yeah, the whole OJ thing was actually branded content. <laughs> the OJ Made in America documentary was actually originally called OJ Made in the Langoliers. But uh, that's a whole other documentary. Here's a little something that's fun for all of you sports fans, and I know you're huge fans of sports, so listen. Uh, Toomey mentions the Los Angeles Rams. Now, this would have felt dated for years because the St. Louis, I'm sorry, the Rams moved to St. Louis in the mid-1990s. However, a couple years ago, they're back. they moved back to Los Angeles, so the layman would be like, oh, they've always been in Los Angeles, but uh, that's what I got. Yeah, there. that would have really thrown me off. I, I would have had to stop reading like on Wikipedia, like, what, the Los Angeles Rams? And this is for my brother who always mentions this as a real deep cut reference um, on the flight back, the sky is described as full dark, which of course is the name of a uh, collection of novels by Stephen King called full dark, no stars. That's a lame one. That's all I've got. And like you said, we've mentioned uh, Boston and the shine obviously with, with Dinah. So anybody have anything else for that? Um, Tie, in terms of ties, real deliberate ties. Not really. I, I think that's it. I got nothing. It, it sucks too because there there was opportunities to tie it more. Um, like I said, you know the crank kings. I can't even talk today. That's right. <laughs> Sorry, I just got my tongue pierced and it's like the size of a cucumber. <laughs> um, but the Crimson King yes. having been involved, Randall Flat. You know there there were opportunities to kind of drop these things in, and I feel like we just got a little brushing of Dark Tower. And, and like we said, they're not really even ever alluded to again in future works. So, well, there's your King's Dominion. Now let's give our overall thoughts to this novella. Can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> okay, I'll be right there. He said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. Okay, so of course, um, we're going to give this on a, on a rating of one to five bright red Pennywise clown noses. And you've got to make sure you say that in its entirety when you give out the ratings here. You know, I'm going to kick this off, and I'm going to give it, this is pretty, I mean, this is pretty bad. One and a half bright red Pennywise clown noses. I think this is a very boring novella. I think the structure is really bad. While the science is somewhat interesting, which we discussed earlier, it's definitely a good idea, Laura, which you had mentioned earlier, too. I like the idea of Toomey as a character. I think he's a really 
interesting character, a good villain, you know. Unfortunately, there are 10 other characters, if you want to include the sleeping guy, who run the gamut of uninteresting to pointless to, um, you know, fucking Warwick. I mean, they're all totally forgettable characters, and King's strength has always been ensembles. And the fact that you couldn't really pull one memorable character here is a huge problem when they are literally the only people that we are following throughout the entire novella. I think uh, this is easily the worst of the novellas that we've read so far and covered so far on this podcast. And I'll go one step further. Of all the novellas I've read in the future, so far for me, <laughs> this is the worst one. Now, I have not read the next three in Four Past Midnight, but for me right now, this is the worst Stephen King novella I've read. One and a half bright red Pennywise clown noses. <laughs> Laura, what do you, what do you got? I'm going to hard ditto that mm. uh, with 1.5 bright Red, Penny, Wise, Clown, Noses. There you go. All right. Um, yeah, I, pretty much everything you just said. And I just, as I said before, I think this could have been a tight short story at around 30 pages because I like, I do like the premise. The execution sucks ass. The end. 100% agree. Dan? I'm going to give this one bright red, Penny Ooh, yeah. Wise, Clown Noses. I agree it. Would have been great if it was maybe 30 pages in and out. You know, Toomey gets killed by the Langoliers. And there's still dozens of pages to go. And the film is sort of the same way where you almost get to the halfway point and you're like, okay, just I've got some great timestamps coming up for that. Yeah, just get to it. It just feels underdeveloped. Certain characters are fleshed out way more than others. I don't really feel like I know much about Engel past the first chapter. Yeah. You hear about his wife dying in the fire, and that's about it. He just kind of is there to fly the plane. Everyone's there to kind of in a utilitarian sense. A lot of people are there to ask questions, right. too. Or answer theories. But that doesn't make for interesting writing. I think condensing this down, I think Dinah could have been a little more interesting. She's, you know, central. Toomey is obviously central. You really only needed three or four characters. It could have been 40 pages. It would have worked better. It just feels under. I, I, I sometimes I do criticize King where his artistic hubris gets in the way. Yeah, and I think this is one where an editor could have stepped in and just been like, "We got to chop this down." No yes. doubt. Yes, like where were the editors? Like I can't believe they greenlit this as a film. Well, we'll we'll, we'll talk about that in moments. All right, so that's our that's us covering the Langlers novella. But let's take a, a brief moment here to thank uh, to thank us honestly for. <laughs> For reading this novella and then rewatching the three-hour miniseries, so Laura, Dan, me, thank you for doing what you do. I know this wasn't easy. I know um, we've we've covered longer books that were greater and shorter books that were greater, but uh, sometimes you know you get stuck with the Langoliers and you can't escape them, and we could not. That's right, they could not. The Langoliers have caught up with this podcast and chewed off the end of it. Ultimately, we are saving our film portion of the Langoliers for later on this week. It'll be a little bonus episode, an hour, if you will. Uh, Justin, Laura, and Dan will be returning to cover that. Uh, This is McKenzie and Justin. I was editing, and I don't appreciate being called an idiot, but I did appreciate the full dark no stars reference. So if you like this podcast, please review us on whatever platform you're listening to. Uh, We will be returning shortly. Uh, But until then, long days and pleasant pleasant nights. nights. I got some hot friends. I got
Consequence Podcast Network.